0: Guys, welcome back to the DTD podcast. This week, a hero and legend in law enforcement circles. He took part in the largest shootout in FBI history that happened on April 11th, 1986 in Miami, Florida. It's Ed Morales, and he's on the show with us tonight. Ed, welcome.
1: Hello. How's it going today?
0: It is going great. Uh, You wouldn't think that so many things could happen in five minutes, but I think to properly tell that side of the story, we kind of have to set it up. So I want to talk first a little bit about your career early on when you were in Washington and you were working with the FBI. Of course you were in the military. You got recruited pretty much at the end of your military career uh, to come over. You thought that it was just going to be lawyers and accountants. They told you, no, we have a lot of stuff to do. You finish your degree and you successfully are recruited into the FBI. Uh, you go yes. and you take over your first duty stations in Washington. so what's it like to come from the military, go to the FBI Academy, graduate and then be kind of in the heart of democracy for your very first assignment?
1: <laughs> That's a good question uh, I've been you know haven't thought about that in a long long time you know first uh, the transition from the military to to a civilian law enforcement agency was, in some respects, it was smooth. In other respects, it was uh, rather difficult. Uh, I had a lot of experience, but I um, one of my weakest areas, if you can believe it, was the um, in the area of law. You know, the actual okay. law, like lawyers, that type of stuff. And I really had to work uh, double hard um, at the academy. Uh, When it came to our law, law classes, you know, and and luckily I had a a super roommate, his name was Paul Moscow. He was an attorney out of, um, excuse me, out of Buffalo, New York, you know, so, um, you know, I I really left out with that because he, he tutored me and helped me and, you know. Uh, criticize me and call me all kinds of names, you know, when I screwed up, <laughs> <laughs> screwed up simple things like Miranda rights and, you know, fourth amendment, you know, and, and stuff like that, you know, stuff I took for granted, you know, but when it came down to to actually knowing, you know, what the limits are what the parameters are, you know, what our authority is, you know, it's, it's very critical, obviously. So, uh, so that, that was, that was an, the interesting side, you know, the, 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 um, the organizational side, uh, there was still discipline. I mean, there was still a rank structure, which is good. I mean, it's always good to have a rank structure, especially in a. Uh, in, I guess the FBI could be called a paramilitary uh, organization, even though we don't wear you wear uniforms. I think I think it's more paramilitary today than it was back in, in 1980. You know, so. Uh, but um, it was uh, it it was an interesting organization from a from a coming from a military background, in the, in the military, you've got E1, E2, E3, E4, right. and so on, right. so on, up to O1, uh, O2, you know, officer one, officer, officer two, and officer three, so on. In the FBI, uh, it's, it was pretty interesting. Uh, you had, uh, we were all recruited, uh, the ages were at a GS-10, GS-11, GS-12, and GS-13. And for the most part, we had, uh, the first supervisory level was a GS 14. And the next level above that was a GS 15. And then the level above that was, um, a GS 16 or higher. So <clears throat> basically between me and the boss, there were, there were two levels. Uh, there was a supervisor and an assistant special agent in charge. That was it. It's a very short telescoped rank structure. And, um, <laughs> I found out, much to the dismay of the FBI, that uh, a GS-10 really has the same authority as a GS-13. I mean, mm-hmm. there is no—I mean, you know, there is no rank structure per se. Uh, uh, it's a pay right. grade, okay? I mean, a GS-13, you know, depending on circumstances, really can't order. A GS ten around, like like you know, a sergeant can order a, a private around, or a sergeant can order a corporal around, but in the FBI, you know, um, the the there was no, I learned that there was no real authority between you know, at GS 13 versus a GS 10 or a GS 11, you know, obviously, you know, in the, in the spirit of team play and, and cooperation, everybody got along, you know, uh, you always deferred to the, to the senior agents, because obviously, they were senior and had more experience than you did. So in that respect, they led by by example, not by rank, you know, so um, and I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, uh, you know, they're, you know, that goes to show you that at GS 10 and the FBI, uh, we really had a lot of authority. I mean, within the organization, obviously, when you start getting up, you know, into the higher pay grades, uh, GS 14s and above, uh, you know, the the authority structure, you know, is 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 a little bit more uh, set and and clear, you know. But in the rank and file, you know, it's like, hey, if I needed help. If I wanted to set up a surveillance, I could say, hey, listen, I'd go to the boss and say, hey, uh, Steve, Bill, I need, a, I, need a, 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 I need to borrow five guys. Can, can you help me out? And I said, well, yeah, go ask them, see who, see who can help you. And so I'd go out in the squad area and say, hey, I need five guys to help me do a surveillance uh, tomorrow. And, you know, if they could, they would. If they couldn't, they had court or something else. They'd say, hey, I can't help you. But it was pretty, um, pretty. I don't know how to describe it. as. Uh, informal, I guess you'd you'd call it low, low, low key and informal. So it was, it was pretty cool.
0: Well, a lot of the way that you describe it in the book was pretty interesting to me. You said out of the field office, it was like 50% counter Intel, 10% criminal investigation, and then 40% applicant work. Uh, which was uh, doing background checks, things like that. on people. Correct. Now, Correct. the interesting now, part of now, that. Now,
1: though, that was in Washington, though. That was in Washington, D.C.
0: Right. The interesting okay. part about Washington to me was you were one of only five Spanish-speaking agents there.
1: Correct. At the time, back in 1980, uh, that, that's a little misleading, though. And, and I, I made a point of saying five Spanish-speaking agents. Okay. Okay now we had for various and sundry reasons <laughs> in washington dc the fbi has tons dozens and scores of linguists assigned to the office okay to to do various and sundry things <laughs> for for the government you know so right. uh, if you needed mm-hmm. if you needed a uh, a french speaker you could you could find Ten or 15 that but they were non-agents okay if you needed uh uh an arabic speaker you could probably find 10 or 15 in the office or if you needed a a, a a a persian speaker or a farsi speaker you know you could find 10 or 15 in the office but but they were they were non uh they were non uh gun gun carrying uh, employees so uh, so i just want to make a distinction you know we did have uh the languages, but as far as the agents, you know, the, you know, the 1811s, you know, the, the gun toting guys, uh, I was one of only five.
0: When, when you talk about the Spanish speakers, is, is there a reason for that? Because you say there's Persian speakers. there's, And I'm sure it's at that time, you know, during the cold war and things like that, I, I understand yeah. why they would have certain linguists, but mm-hmm. I, I think at that point, isn't that Spanish kind of kicking off in that, you know, we, we, I don't think we've quite got to the Iran-Contra affair. We haven't got to the Sandinistas, uh, anything like that. But there were things going on in South America, Central America. Was there a reason why there wasn't that many speakers? Well, you know what, though, uh,
1: as far as Spanish goes, uh, if you if you have any ancient history of the nineteen, not not, not the but nineteen eighty. I mean, we were in Sleepy Hollow. I mean, comparatively speaking. I mean, the Cold War was going. I mean, there was a serious, serious, right. uh, you know, uh, subtle, unseen war going on between the East and the West. Now, those languages were abundant. I mean, they were like, you could knock over a tree and you'd find somebody behind it that, that could speak one of those uh, one of those interesting languages. Uh, but um, as far as you know, the the Spanish. And, and the Farsi, you know the, the Iranian and the Arabic, you know this is pre uh, this is uh, right at the, at the at the onset of the uh, uh, Iran embassy hostage uh, situation. you know it was just starting. And um, honestly, I think the whole US government was caught with its you know pants down. Uh, I mean, it's it's hard to predict where the next uh, flashpoint is going to be in the world, you know. And in 1980, it happened to be Iran, okay. And then all the Middle Eastern uh, languages, you know, the, the 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 mix, you know, in the Middle East, just you know, it just exploded, you know. So um, and then in 1980, um, I knew what drugs were, but. The FBI at that time had no, no jurisdiction into the drug uh, violations. So it was, like I said, it's kind of sleepy hollow. Now, you mentioned Iran-Contra and, um, and, and and Central America. Right about that time is when everything started kicking off in Central America. The Sandinistas, you know, the Nicaraguans, uh, the um, El Salvadorians, uh, the, that whole area just kind of ignited. You know, and then you had Ollie North and his, uh, (laughs) his uh, project, (laughs) you know, I guess we could call it a project, you know, so and then that, you know, that just stirred, you know, stirred the hornet's nest down there. And then uh, uh, you had, uh, I don't know if anybody remembers him, uh, Barry Seals, the DEA informant, Mm -hmm. who was, uh, they made a movie recently uh in the last last couple of years i think it was tom cruise I yeah, uh, <laughs>
0: american made where he was flying american right uh, correct he was that, flying the drugs
1: what? uh i mean I, w- I was around when that kicked off you know and uh of course you had and, and it happens uh, more often than people realize you have a, cr- a criminal uh investigation that dovetails Into a counterintelligence operation or a counterterrorism operation, and back then it wasn't that it was kind of unusual for that to happen, but it did happen. And poor old Barry Seal's, you know, uh, he took it in the neck, you know, uh, because uh, somebody, yeah, because somebody, and I'm not gonna name names, uh, Ollie North, uh, somebody, (laughs) somebody leaked his name or leaked some video. of him meeting with uh, uh, pineapple face uh, the uh, his his lieutenants and his his generals you know uh, in panama and uh, it it was tragic because that video was singular in nature And when i say singular there's only one source that 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 could have come from you've got five bad guys and one outsider and then a video was leaked Showing the five bad guys doing bad things, you know, it's like, well, it doesn't take a mental genius to figure it out. It's like, hey, we're the bad guys, and then there's an outsider, and and this video ends up on TV. It's like, what the hell happened? It's like, oh, let me see. It was it wasn't Pablo. It wasn't Juan. It wasn't Felipe. It wasn't Edmundo. It wasn't Gilberto. So it must have been Barry, okay? And you know, he 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 ended up getting it in the neck. You know, so, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's sad, you know. But anyway, that that whole thing that right around that time is when, when things started kicking off with the Sandinistas and the drug war and so on and so forth. You know, and man, after that, I mean, they just went into high gear. Spanish became a, and then you had the Mariel boat lift, you know, right around that time, you know, in the, in the later in the 80s. It, it just became uh Spanish became a a, a, a a wanted language, you know, for law enforcement.
0: Well, and, and that's what's interesting to me is that it, it almost seems like, and I, I feel that it it's still to this day in law enforcement sometimes where we're playing catch-up, um, where, mm-hmm. where our, our job kind of is to see what's on the horizon, but we get caught behind it sometimes, especially with – Uh, big operations like that in central South America, we have a cold war going on, which rightfully so we're paying attention to that part of the world. You at the same time have during that cold war, you have Russia and Afghanistan, you have a lot of different moving pieces. And do you think that there was one particular thing that necessarily kicked off that whole Spanish, uh, I guess you would say kind of uh foray into that investigation or into those and in kind of investigations, was there something that kicked it off?
1: Well, you know what though, it was, it, I, I can't really point to one thing. Uh, obviously the, uh, the, uh Ollie North co- Contra uh, project and then the uh, Nicaraguan Sandinistas, you know, when, the, when the communists took over Nicaragua and then you had the communists trying to take over El Salvador. Um, it was uh, it it just it was, it was a flashpoint, and it 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 caught and it took 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 uh it, it started combusting, you know. And then you had the the Panama, uh, you know, the invasion of Panama, with Noriega, you know, Pineapple Face. It just kind of all self ignited. I mean, it was like almost like. Uh, you know, it just combusted, you know, on its own, you know, so, and, and I, you know, I'm not an analyst, and I, I mean, I'm just going by what I recall back in the 80s. Um, I, I'm sure somebody probably had a had, had a, 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 an eye on it, or their finger on the pulse, to, 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 and somebody, some analyst must have told some, some boss, saying, hey, boss, we've got some problems coming down the road here in Central America, Okay, and it it never really filtered down to us because I mean we're we're the FBI. we work domestically. We're, we don't really work. and I mean we have we have agents around the world in embassies, but we you know we really didn't work in in El Salvador or Nicaragua, you know where we always handled the fallout, you know, the residue after things explode, you know so but I'm sure somebody in the government was probably keeping tabs on 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 events you know, uh, the embassies and the intelligence folks, you know, in in the the intelligence agencies were probably keeping good tabs on on events. But um, I'll tell you what though, man, when it kicked off, I mean, it was like, it's like a dam bursting. It just, it just, you know, you had the Sandinistas, the communists, and then the Cubans, you know, always sticking their, you know, their noses in places that, you know, it it didn't belong. And then you had, you know, Noriega goes rogue uh, on, on the U.S. And then you had, man, right, right at the peak, I mean, the, the 80s was the peak of the uh, the uh, drug cartels, the five major cartels down there. I mean, they just started just rocking and rolling. I mean, they were just... Uh, I, I've, I've talked to uh, narcotics officers and, and, and police officers in Miami. They said it was just incredible, the amounts of drugs that were just... Well, if you go back to Barry Seals, he was flying in, mm-hmm. you know hundreds and hundreds of kilos uh, of cocaine, you know, per week, you know, I mean, he was just, and he was just one guy. Okay. <laughs> Imagine all the other Berry Seals that were out there, you know, around the country, you know, uh, in California, Arizona, Texas, New Orleans, you know, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, you know, all, all these, all these people, pilots and boat, boat captains, bring it in. I mean, it was just, I mean, it, it became a tidal wave of, um, of drugs, and it, yeah, It was just like the perfect storm.
0: You know, they've made a ton of documentaries about that, the Cocaine Cowboys, Cocaine Cowboys Reloaded, all that mm. kind of stuff. Now, I, I think that that segs us into kind of the next part when you go down to Miami. But there's one more thing I wanted to talk about in Washington, D.C., and I think it was probably one of the biggest things that you did while you were in D.C., and that was the Reagan assassination attempt. Now, what was funny to me in your book as I'm reading it you talk about it, and you say, "I think you were eighteen months out of the academy," and and you you show up to the presidential assassination attempt, and you're trying to be real serious and 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 let people know you're in charge. And inside, you were just falling apart, trying to figure out what was going on. So, if if, if you may, I,
1: may may I use a a comment? That, absolutely. That. Uh, that uh, I, I first heard it in the in the Marine Corps, you know, but I, I think I can I can apply it to the uh, FBI. When I was when I was in the Marine Corps, I, I reported someplace, you know, and uh, I forget where it was, but I had a, I had this grumpy old ass of a sergeant, you know, said, "Man, look at this guy. You know, he's so new, he's still shitting boot camp food." You know, <laughs> let, let me repeat that. He is still shitting boot camp. Food. That means that you just got out of boot camp yesterday or something like that. Well, when I showed up at the Reagan assassination uh, project, you know, I mean, uh, incident, I thought to myself, man, I'm so shitting academy food, man. And here I am in, in the middle of this huge national emergency. The president of the United States has been shot and i was her first fbi agent on the scene you know and i'm thinking what the hell am i doing here you know it's like holy shit and i just walked around you know i, I put on a serious face and I, I stood tall you know and i walked around you know and um uh, you know i i kind of just i i i, I ho- i'm hoping i exuded the aura of authority you know because nobody questioned me and and which is good because the scene was still under, in pandemonium. I mean, they they had gotten all the wounded out by the time I got there. But, I mean, it was just, I mean, people were still running around and they were trying to preserve the, the crime scene because they knew more or less generally where the crime scene was, but they really didn't know how far out it extended, you know. And uh, I, I think I mentioned in, in the book that luckily uh, my one of my squad mates, uh, a gentleman by the name of Al Garrettson, shows up. And he was a laboratory guy. He was a, a lab agent who had uh, transferred from headquarters to the to the Washington field office to work cases. And he uh, was in the first um, he was one of the first agents to actually set up a, a an evidence response uh, vehicle for the field uh, for, for field agents. So he shows up with the, with this band full of you know evidence, uh, equipment, you know, bags and gloves and and uh, o- overall coveralls and and uh, all kinds of forms and pens and papers and you know little little things to mark evidence with on the ground and stuff like that. And I'm thinking oh, thank you, Jesus, you know, because <laughs> Al was the expert, and um, I just t- tagged along with Al and I, I basically became a scribe, you know, because and I, I learned a lot, you know, from there. You know,
0: so, well, two things that happened to you there were pretty funny and interesting to me was one was you looked around and you see these blood trails and everything and you see blood on the ground and you start thinking to yourself, wow, the president just almost got killed and I'm investigating it. And it's, mm-hmm. it, it seems as you write it, like it's almost overwhelming to you. Like it doesn't shut you down, but you're like, Holy shit. Like this is, you know, I real mean, deal. it
1: was, I mean, it's it, it I mean, it, it like, it was, on one level, it was just overwhelming. And and on another level, it was like, wow, what a huge responsibility, you know? So, uh, at that point, um, you know, I hate to say it, but, uh, I did have visions of Dallas, you know, that supposedly the, the, the Kennedy investigation was just totally and completely screwed up. I mean, you know, honestly, um, nobody, if you, if you, yeah. I'm told that if you try to go back and reconstruct the Kennedy assassination, you don't know what's up and what's down. I mean, gen- you have some general facts, you know, that that are that are fixed. You have you have the the movie, uh, the the home movie video. But the rest of it is just like, what in the... I mean, you have statements and events that happened that were out of out of control and stuff like that. So I had visions of that, and I'm thinking, we cannot let that happen here, you know? And then when Al, Al got there, he said, Ed, you know, we got to make sure that everything is done correctly. All the T's have to be crossed and all the I's have to be dotted, you know, because we, I mean, we cannot be second-guessed in court, you know, And, and which is true. I mean, and everything was very slow and meticulous and and documented and and, you know and everything was 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 done by the book a b c and d and um i think in the end um there was no um there was no question as to what had happened you know the investigation was that thorough you know and, and 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 documented you know there was no People running off, you know, and doing cowboy things, you know, in the middle of the night or the middle of the day, you know. So, in, in that respect, it was um, I, there was an incident, and, and I, it wasn't in my book. And, and I'll just relate relay it to your your audience. I was at the crime scene from the time that I arrived. I think it was about three p.m. and you know, uh, in the afternoon, and I was on scene till like one or two or three in the morning. So I know that we we searched once we got the manpower in place and once we coordinated the crime scene and, and then you know we started you know going from from point A and we spread out in a circle you know and the circle got wider and wider and wider so that we encompassed all the potential uh, crime scene area okay up to the, the the wall of the buildings in in the area so we went from wall to wall front, I mean, east, west, north and south, you know, that was our crime scene on that street. So, I know that we did a thorough job, and the next day when I came back to work, I had a message uh, that had been relayed, I don't know why it was sent to me, but apparently some reporter, and I don't even remember the, the newspaper, I think it was someplace out of Philadelphia or something like that. If you walk out of the front of the hotel, the Hilton Hotel, and and straight out of the front door, off to the right was the uh, crime scene. Off to the left was uh, opposite of the crime scene. There was some, uh, you know, the the driveway went, you know, east and west. Um, so, on the eastern side of the of the uh, building, that was a non crime scene area. <laughs> A reporter calls the office and said that he found five 22 caliber shell casings under a bush back there. And I'm thinking, how is that possible? I mean, we we literally crawled on our hands and knees in that whole area. I mean, it was like a grid search. You know, on our hands and knees, looking for bullet fragments, looking for anything. Okay, and then this reporter mis- miraculously finds fibers, shell casings, twenty-two caliber to be exact. Okay, underneath a bush that was on the opposite side of the crime scene. You know, it's like, oh my God, we have the we have the uh, the the the, uh, the shooter on the grassy knoll. You know, it's like, oh my God, there were two shooters. It's like, oh my God, give me a break. You know, so. Um, we took the evidence. We analyzed it. wasn't even the same type of uh, of uh, ammunition that Hinckley had used in his revolver, his little revolver. So it's like, you know, we just put a little asterisk on it, saying, "Hey, unknown shell cases recovered by some, you know, donkey reporter, you know, in <laughs> Philadelphia." Okay, we <laughs> we documented them. We put them away, and we, you know, it's like it wasn't even close, you know. So, so, but that was the, you know. Somebody was playing games, somebody was trying to stir the pot, you know, say, Oh, the you know, the shooter on the grassy knoll, you know, there was another shooter. It's like, okay, yeah, okay, thanks, you know.
0: <laughs> well, and I think they were trying to do exactly what you said was to make another Dallas.
1: Yeah. I don't know why or what would possess I mean especially a reporter, it's like, what in the world? Why? You know, <laughs>
0: I, I, I but, used to think that question, but I think that might be a little different now. Uh, maybe maybe that that sensationalism sells. I don't know. I don't know what it could have been, but it's, I it's mean, crazy. You know, that, I mean,
1: you know, it's like, was it this person trying to make a name for himself or right. was this person trying to get a promotion? or? But because, I mean, nothing matched. Okay. The the, 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 the type of ammunition that we found wasn't the type of ammunition that Hinckley used. OK, and, and the fact that we had done a hands and knees, you know, grid search for evidence the night before and found nothing. And then mysteriously, the next morning there's or the next day there's showcasings there. It's like, hmm, you know, it's like, nah. right. I mean, see that, that that's why that's why, you know, I, I, we wanted to make absolutely sure that, you know, things like that could not be could not happen if they happened, You know, you knew right away they were bogus. You know, it's just absolute bullshit, you know.
0: And so after that happens, you, uh, you go down to Miami. Now everyone would think, all right, I'm headed to Miami. Now we're talking, uh, 85 about when you get down there, correct? Correct. correct. Okay. So 85, we're, we're kind of in the height of Miami vice on TV. Uh, everyone's kind of looking at that place. I think that being at the height of Miami Vice, as we talk later on in this story, might have gone against you a little bit in this story, uh, yeah, just from yeah. just from what people were thinking. But you come down there, you've got 16 total agents in your squad, including yourself. Uh, you're moved to the Miami Bank Robbery Squad. Now, the thing about this was you you mentioned that you have three gangs of bank robbers there. You have a black gang, a Cuban gang, and an unknown gang. Correct. Now, you were saying in the book that at, at one point there was, like, five bank robberies or uh, armored vehicle robberies a day.
1: Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. But, see, you know what, though? Uh, unless unless you're in the business, uh, you, you probably wouldn't know that. You know, here, here's a statistic for you. Miami was kind of sleepy hollow. When it came to that type of uh, crime, at the time in the '80s, Los Angeles had 20 plus robberies a day, armored truck and bank. You know, you you think you know you think three or four or five a day is is high. Man, I can't even imagine <laughs> having to respond to 20 or 25 or 30 bank robberies in a day. It was being man, you know you you know you get your frequent flyer miles because you'll be crisscrossing the county, you know, back and forth, you know. So, Um, but see, Los Angeles, I I really don't know. I mean, greed is greed. People are, criminals are criminals, you know, but I think that a lot of those robberies happened because uh, there was this new uh, phenomenon, you know, uh, banks started, you know, started being opened in grocery stores, you know, and and you know the old you know places like that. You know places where banks you know normally wouldn't be. So you have a bank in a grocery store. I mean, people think, hey, you know, this bank is wide open. Just a, a couple of desks and a couple of tellers back there. There's no gates, no no screens, no uh, you know bulletproof glass or anything. And uh, robbers probably thought they were easy, probably thought there were easy pickings. You know, I don't know. I honestly don't know how much money those types of banks uh, would, would hold, but I'm sure they had some money, you know, but uh, they became easy targets. You know, I mean, you know, that, that's, that's what happened to the, uh, that's one reason why there was an increase in bank robberies. So uh, just a weird phenomenon.
0: So when this increase in bank robberies happen, you have these three different gangs. Now your unknown gang leads to later on in the story, but I want to talk a little more about uh, the other things that were going on and the reasons maybe why they were happening. And of course, we talked about the banks being opened and grocery stores, places that they wouldn't have been. But it seems almost to me in reading your book that with the armored trucks, it almost was just to see if they could get away with it, just to see how lax the security was on an armored truck because it it, it vastly... Uh, was different in your story with the different companies. Some some companies, the same guy that worked on the truck was getting robbed multiple times.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you. You know what? Though we we talked about it when I got down there in '85. You know, and down to the last agent on the squad, every one of us said, "Man, I would not want to be a, a, a an armored truck courier in Miami." I mean, your life expectancy down there was like. I mean, low, okay, because uh, those guys were getting shot and or injured or, or mugged or kidnapped, bop, bopped on the head, you know, I mean, almost every day, you know, it's like, oh, it, it got so bad down there in, in, in the mid 80s, 85 to 86, that some of the armored trucks um, started, you know, normally you, uh, an armored truck has a driver and a courier, okay, two, two guys kind of like the, you know, the old stagecoach, you know, you had the driver and the shotgun, you know? So, uh, but, uh, it was so bad down there that the armored truck uh, company started uh, deploying three guys in, in um, in, in an armored truck. You had the driver and the courier, and then they added a real shotgun rider. Okay. They added two guys in the front, uh, the driver and the next to the driver was a guy with a shotgun. I mean, that's that's where the term shot, uh, shotgun shot. I'm writing shotgun, you know, so uh, that's how bad it was. And they started issuing body armor to uh, uh, to the guards, to the security guards. But these guys, you know, you, you want to shake them. You know, when you saw them, they would put their body armor On top of their uniforms, (laughs) so everybody in the world could see. Okay, all this white area—you don't want to shoot. You want to shoot the areas that aren't covered with the white cloth. You know, shoot them in the head, and that's where they ended up getting shot. They they ended up getting shot in the head, most of the time. You know, so. so you know they they added a third guard with a shotgun. They gave him body armor. So I mean it was pretty serious. You know it's like like we like everybody said on my squad. I Man, I, if I got fired, I wouldn't I wouldn't take a job as a courier, <laughs> as an armored truck courier. No way.
0: No, I I absolutely agree. And when you look at this, and we take the unknown gang out of the equation for just a minute, uh, and we look at the other two gangs, uh, did you see the violence? that you saw from the unknown gang in these other uh, bank robberies, or was it more of a, let's get in, get out, get the job done? Because it almost at points with your unknown gang seemed personal to them.
1: You know, I I can't minimize the violence that the other two gangs had. Okay. Certainly there were threats, uh, a lot of threats and display of weapons and, and, you know, pushing people around tellers you know and stuff like that, you know. So, and there was one incident that happened in Coral Gables. Um, I remember the incident, it was on a Friday, four o'clock on a Friday. You know, it's like God, what you can just imagine the traffic. Coral Gables is down uh towards the center of Miami. We were on the uh, we were at a hundred and no, we were at uh, 38th Street and Biscayne Boulevard. We weren't. Too far out of out of the downtown Miami area, but we were far enough away that it would make a hike. It would be a hike to 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 drive to um, Coral Gables Friday evening, Friday afternoon. Courier gets out of the, uh, his armored truck uh, uh, and goes into a uh, of all places, the telephone company. Um, he walks in normal routine, walks in through a back door, side door walks down the hallway to the, you know, the, the telephone company, uh, accounting office. And I, I guess they collected, you know, payments from people. And some of, some of them were in cash. A lot of them were in checks, but he goes in, picks up, you know, his, um, you know, the load for the day, whether it was cash or checks is walking out and something happened. No, nobody saw it. He, he was confronted by two guys and, there was an exchange of words. That's what the witnesses said. And there was a scuffle and one of the, one of the two perpetrators shot the guard in the head, killed him right there, you know, uh, right there in the hallway. They grabbed the bag and then took off, you know? So, um, uh, we don't know, I don't remember whether it was, that was the Cuban gang or, or the black gang that did that. So they, they weren't, they weren't shy about, uh, you know, shooting people and threatening them, but, it wasn't a, a normal MO for them, you know. They they proved that they that they would use deadly force, okay, but they didn't use it as a routine, okay. Now the unknown gang, I mean, right from the get-go, uh, they started. It became pretty obvious that they were, uh, not the uh, you know not the average Miami gang, okay, because from the get-go they opened up with their assault rifle, you know, and fired about fourteen or fifteen shots. Um, and and it's like, Whoa, that's, that's unusual. You know, so that, that right there and, and, and the the other escape, uh, mechanism that they used uh, as they're speeding away, you know, which was, uh, they popped, uh, the, the pins on two smoke grenades and the the passenger put them out the window and threw them in the back of the car, you know, it's (laughs) like, well, you know, even, even by Miami standards, (laughs) that was, Different. That was weird. You know, it's like I've never seen anybody throw smoke grenades outside of a car, you know, to, to hide their escape. You know, um, normally smoke is for signaling or or you want to you want to obscure something that's stationary. OK, not something that's speeding away at 50 miles an hour, you know, so.
0: So when these guys come on scene and uh, it's a uh, William Russell Maddox and uh, Michael Lee Platt. Now, right away you're being told, uh, and of course we know that that sometimes people on the (coughs) scene, eyewitnesses, get it wrong, or they can get it wrong, or they see it different. But you start getting uh, a different from the Cuban and the black gangs. You start getting, these are white guys. (coughs) These are white guys. They're highly motivated. They seem military-like. And you go on that for a while with this that that it's uh, two white males and stuff, but then you start getting intermingled in information that, well, maybe it wasn't a white guy, maybe it was a, a black guy, maybe it was. Mm-hmm. So what was it that that kind of caused that transition? Because in the beginning, people were certain, okay, this is what they were, this is what they were, were positive, and then it kind of broke off into where you start getting different descriptions. Was there Was there something that was happening that was changing the MO that was getting people to look at it differently? No.
1: What happened was um, they were – what's the word I'm looking for? They were not meticulous, but they were a lot more detailed, I I guess, detail-oriented than the other two gangs. These two guys, from the very beginning, they wore ski masks – dark clothing uh, it was almost like uh like uh, camouflaged fatigues that had been dyed black you know you could see kind of there was a pattern underneath the black you know uh, dye but they weren't black black you know they weren't like your standard what what I would call your sWAT black you know uh, blouse and, and and trousers you know but uh so they had uh, dark you know some people said it was black. Some people said it was dark green, real dark green, and they wore ski masks and they wore gloves. Okay, so that really they did not have any any skin showing. Okay, I mean you, you could they had you know they had an opening for their mouth and then they had an opening for their eyes. Okay, but even that you know a lot a lot of people couldn't tell uh, whether they were black, white, or or Hispanic. What they could tell was that they had real long faces, and that long face was uh, a rifle. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when somebody sticks a rifle or, or the muzzle of a, of a pistol or revolver in your face, uh, your, your recollection gets fuzzy. You know, <laughs> all you see is a big hole you know, staring that, at bro. your face, you know, and you go, you know what, I... <laughs> I don't remember. He had a long nose, officer, you know? <laughs> and it was chrome. You know, <laughs> so, and, and- so, so, so. You know, I mean, I'm joking, but in reality, you know, people, you know, when, when some people are confronted with with uh, death or a threat, you know, they they their recollection and their and their uh, right. ability to to recall things and see things even uh, gets real fuzzy. Okay, but the thing is, you know, it, even from the beginning, uh, people, it, people were just guessing because they they wore you know, they wore uh, it, all their clothing was meant to, to disguise them. You know, I mean, there, there was no, I mean, nothing was sticking out, their wrists weren't showing or their ankles, you know, from their you know, they, they weren't they didn't go sockless, you know, <laughs> in, in deck shoes, you know, they they they, they took. Uh, care to, to, to uh, conceal their, their identities. So the witnesses were, up until the up until the middle of the investigations, it was all speculation. Because like I said, you know, some people said they were black or white and, you know, Hispanic. Other people said, you know, who, who knows? I mean, until the very end, we really didn't know who they were or, or even what race they were.
0: Now over yeah. a seventh-month time period, Uh, they, you think that they're good for 15 bank and armored trucks. Is that correct?
1: Correct. Based on their mo, though. So,
0: uh, they fired weapons on at several locations. You, you saw that right from the beginning that they, these guys were Mm -hmm. not coming to play. They were coming to do a job. Right. Uh, they ended up killing two armored guards. Uh, and then they killed another man, stole his car. Now we'll get into that stolen car a little bit later. But ultimately, in total, they killed the two armored car, uh, car guards. They killed the man for the vehicle. They killed two federal agents and wounded five other ones, three critically. These guys right. were different. They were cut from a different cloth. And right. so did we ever cut? Now, I know with the way the story ends, there wasn't a way to talk to them about it. But did we ever come to any conclusion of, what kind of started this train in motion? Because like you said, they came on the scene with a bang and they were going at it. I mean, they were uh, cracking at it as soon as they got to it. Did we ever figure out a reason why these guys were so different from the normal?
1: You know, it's, it's still to this day difficult to to really put a, put a, a, I know a handle on them or or a finger on them. Um, They interviewed, ex-girlfriends going back uh, uh, to their army days, okay? And their girlfriends would, told the investigators that these two guys would, not every day, not every week even, but more often than not, at least once a month, twice a month, they would uh, get, uh, they would dress up in, in combat gear at night and they would go out at night okay with guns and, and and their their camouflage clothing and stuff and i'm not sure whether it was speculation on the girls, girlfriend's parts or whether they actually told the girlfriends what they were doing but the uh, theory is that they were running out and and robbing drug you know lo- local drug dealers or pimps in the middle of the night, okay? Oh wow! Because oh, uh, they, you know, that that was, you know, kind of like a a way to make some some chump change, you know, some uh, some walking around money, I guess, you know. But uh, so they had this history, according to the the girlfriends, that they would go out at night and they would confront other people doing other other business at night pimps or drug dealers okay now what a perfect victim you know what you know if i'm a drug dealer and you and you come rob me what am i going to do am i going to call the police and say officer you know uh these two guys came over and stole my cocaine you know can you can you help me you know find them and get it back please i mean you know usually not i mean (laughs) that never happens really so i think or we speculate that they were kind of uh they they had a, a longer history, criminal history, than than we were able to to really uh, verify, because they had no criminal history. I mean, you you run them, uh, you know, if you ran them through the system, you know, an official system, by name and and date of birth, they had, according to the uh, NCIc, they had they didn't even have a speeding ticket. Okay, so. You know, they were either very lucky or very meticulous or both, you know, but um, um, that coupled with their military training, okay, uh, that made them a a cut above, you know, the average, uh, you know, run-of-the-mill garden variety you know, a neighborhood bully who turns into a, a, a drug dealer, who turns into a robber, who turn you know, that type of stuff, you know. These guys actually had, you know, training, you know, uh, thanks to Uncle Sam, okay. They had uh, weapons training and, and small unit tactics, you know, training, because, you know, they were 101st Airborne. And uh, the, their training, their suspected past history, and, you know, may, maybe – this is speculation on my part. Maybe it was, uh, you know, the excitement of it, of it, you know, getting out there and, you know, terrorizing, you know, people, and maybe they thought they were Robin hoods. You know, they were, they were robbing evil people, drug dealers and criminals, you know, and, and nobody in their mind, nobody was, was getting hurt. Okay. So um, then fast forward a few years and they end up in Miami. And you would think that they would run out and try to, try to, you know, uh, rob drug dealers. I mean, because Miami is full of drug dealers, you know, but you would think that they would do that, but they didn't, you know, um, they, they went right into armored truck robberies or bank robberies. And the thing is, you know, from the beginning, from the first robbery, uh, which was at the Steak and Ale restaurant, uh, let me you the That exam. would have been October
0: 9th, 1985. It was a Loomis truck at the steak and ale.
1: Right. October 9th. From the very beginning, um they they demonstrated that they were violent, but they also demonstrated that they were uh uh novices. Because their their whole their whole style and technique was just I mean it was just amateurish. You know, it's like I mean the whole the whole thing. You know, I mean you 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 know they were smart enough to attack the guard when he came out of the building, as opposed to when he was going into the building. Into the building, he's probably not carrying any money. Coming out of the building, he's carrying money. But you know, they 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 tried to gain access to the armored truck, and the, you know the armored truck driver did what he was directed to do. He's you know he's not supposed to open the door for anyone. You know, so he drove away. So they they ended up firing. Uh, their uh, Mini-14 at the at the rear of, of the armored truck, you know, and that didn't do anything. And then um, they throw out the smoke grenades, you know, and, and they take off, you know. So, I mean, e- even from the beginning, you was like, wow, these guys are kind of amateurs, you know. So um, and then next week, the following mm-hmm. week on uh, October uh, 16th, the I believe 16th. it was, Winn-Dixie. Yep. Grocery store, um, that was like, unbelievable. Right, right at high noon, 12 noon in the middle of a crowded shopping center in front of a grocery store, they end up, you know, in, in a gunfight. Okay. And, uh, they shot, uh, the courier, they hit him in the legs with a double out buck. And, uh, he, he they sw- basically swept his feet out from under him and he fell, fell down. There were three guards, uh, in the armored truck, you know, they had the shotgun system and, uh, Thank God the the three guards only had six shot revolvers <laughs> because they, all three guards, man, they they spent those rounds. You know, they fired they fired six shots each, which was 18 rounds. And then uh, the bad guys, uh, we speculate that they fired a, a, at least 12 shots back at the guards. Okay, maybe even 15 shots. And amazingly, only the guard, the initial guard that was shot was, was wounded. Everybody else, I mean, all the citizens and kids and grandmas and wives and stuff, you know, that were in the grocery store and the shopping center, nobody was hit. It was just amazing. Again, we were thinking, why, what are these guys doing? I mean, they get into literally a a 30 round gunfight in front of a, a grocery store in a parking lot and they got, they got nothing for it you know it's like what the hell you know and um, then the following week at the uh, Daltz restaurant the uh, the guard that had been accosted at the steak and ale was was the courier at the Daltz, and he sees uh, a couple of guys behind a a dumpster that uh, where the armored truck was parked next to and he sees him and he goes you know what you know i'm not going to be fooled twice you know, so he drew his revolver and he fired at the, at the individuals that he suspected were there to rob him. And he fired four shots and they take off, you know, so, um, again, that's the third attempt, nothing, they, they got nothing. You know, they got, uh, I think the first steak and ale, uh, robbery, they got like $2,000, but three attempts and they got $2,000, three attempts. And, and there's a total of 15 and 30, that's 45. And then, the, and then the, uh, four shots from the, um, from the guard. That's almost 50 shots fired in three attempts, 50 shots fired. You know, it's like, Holy cow, you gotta be kidding me. You know? I mean, it was, it was almost like amateur hour. Okay. But then, you know, things took, a took a turn for the, for
0: the worst, you know? So it's like, wow, not a good thing. And so you have, we talk about those three. So you have October 9th, 16th, and then I have the seventeenth, but I guess it was the next week uh, with the um, the Dalt's restaurant. Right. Right. Uh, so, no. Fast forward to November eighth, uh, Florida National Bank. Uh, they, right. they they make a hit on it, but but what's interesting about this one is what they do right after this ninety Correct. minutes later.
1: Right. Yeah, and the thing is, you know, again, we're speculating that when when they hit at 10 o'clock, they accosted a guard and a a teller. Uh, They were going from the main building towards a teller island, you know, and back in the old days, you know, I think now they used uh, these air pneumatic machines, you know, to, uh, you know, people make deposits and so on and so forth uh, using that system. But in the old days, you you had to have a, a, a person walk from one building to another, to the to the uh, to the little island, okay, to to run the drive-through, and uh, they must have been surveilled because they knew when when to expect them. You know, so as soon as they got to the uh, the Teller Island, two individuals, dark clothing, assault weapon, and and a handgun, ski masks, gloves, the whole nine yards. Um, they came out of of the bushes or from behind the building, and they uh, hit the guard on the head, took his gun, and then they. Uh, stuck a gun in the uh, female teller's face and said, Hey, open the door. So, um, they took the little pouch that she had with her, the little money bag, and, uh, she's all scared, you know, and she's all, "Oh, please don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. So she takes the key and she's trying to get, get the key in, in, in the lock, you know, she's so scared. She's shaking. And when she puts the key kind of halfway in there, she, she breaks the key off in the, in the lock, you know, and, uh, she turns around and looks at the at the two robbers and oh please don't hurt me please don't hurt me i was so scared you scared me so much that i you know my hand was shaking so hard that i I broke the key off you know and you know luckily they didn't hurt her or or you know the 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 male guard you know once they popped him on the head he was basically docile you know so so they grabbed the money bag and based on on the count that the bank had you know it was ten thousand dollars in the bag so we know they got ten thousand dollars and they probably figured, hey, that's not enough. So um 90 minutes later, they go to um uh, another bank and this one was at 12 noon, high noon, and uh this bank was full of people. It was like 25, 30 people in, in in the bank doing business, you know. So they walk in there, you know, Miami by style, you know, one of them fires around into the ceiling. You know, everybody on the floor, the second individual goes behind the uh, the tellers and they uh, ask for the head teller and, and, you know, the young the young tellers did the right thing It's that's her over there. <laughs> Take her. It's not me. You know? <laughs> I would have done the same thing. <laughs> well, I think he's at one like,
0: point in the book, you say you wouldn't even fault the driver that drove away. You said, I'd probably do the same thing.
1: <laughs> you know, It's like, that's her over there. Don't hurt me. You know? So yeah. they go over there and, and they they grab her and say, okay, you know, uh, they call us some names and said, okay, where are the bags that the armored truck people just delivered? And she told him, hey, they're in, they're in the safe, you know, and, and the, the safe wasn't locked with the steel door. It was locked with the with the cage, you know, the little grill work. And you know? so she opened it for him. They went in there, they grabbed two bags, and they left the bank. Okay, now that hit was about $50,000, okay, worth of cash, you know. So, um, So, you know, they were getting a little smarter and doing things without, you know, bull, you know, shooting up the neighborhood, you know, so uh, they were getting better and better at it, you know, so, uh, you know. Now, they, are die really...
0: packs, are are they a thing at this point?
1: Yes, they are. Okay. Very much so. That's why That's why they went to, for the bags. Okay. Not, not the teller in cash. <laughs> because
0: Was because, because they knew those wouldn't have the die packs in them.
1: Correct, correct. You don't put die packs in, in, in Wells Fargo or, or Brinks armored truck bags. I mean, what for? You know, I mean, uh, you, you, they'll explode in the bag and it'll ruin all the money, you know, right. so, but the, the tellers, the teller uh, uh, drawers, they have die packs, you know, that, that are set to go, you know, all the, all the teller has to do is know which one the die pack is and put it in the, in the bag, you know, so uh, that kind of ruins the money, you know, so.
0: Well, that's interesting because I, I never knew that. I thought it was on both sides if they the die packs were going to be just any way to kind of trace. So you're you're uh, even more than I thought correct in saying that they're getting smarter quickly, uh, that right. they know exactly right. where to go. Because, uh, I mean, if you look at it, like you said, that, that's a crazy time to hit a bank at noon. It's going to be full. Right. There's going to be traffic everywhere. People right. are going to be eating lunch. But they knew exactly how to get in and get out.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it, it became obvious that they were doing their homework, you know, because uh, if you if you th- go back to the 10 a.m. Uh, uh, bank guard and, and teller at the island, they had to know the schedule because they were waiting for them, you know. So they, 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 they there had to be some surveillance involved there. Okay. So uh, they knew exactly when to be there and, and exactly where to go to, to accost them. So uh, they were getting smarter.
0: And so January 10th, we moved to that one, Continental Bank. Their shot's fired there, so they're back in kind of firing and and being very forceful. Uh, Four days later, on the 14th, uh, you are kind of really – this is where the investigation is kind of catching up to them. Um, You are Mm -hmm. looking for some areas that you think that they might have uh, taken the cars from or – Uh, The investigation is kind of narrowing in on him. You don't really have that that chokehold on him yet, but you're moving in very much. No, no,
1: we we, we were getting closer, you know, and, 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 you know, it's a it's a reality of life, you know, but it's kind of a a sad commentary on on life itself or, you know, the profession. Very rarely do you solve a crime or, or solve a series of crimes with just one event. OK, um, it, it almost takes several events for you to be able to get enough evidence, you know, physical evidence and eyewitness evidence and uh, and, you know, just other intuitive things that, that you see and learn, you know, with experience and stuff. You know, so um, by this time we had uh, five incidents. OK, and uh, we were getting more and more Evidence and more and more of a of a profile for these guys. So we were starting to narrow in on these guys, but it wasn't um, it, We weren't quite there. We had we speculated that these guys and uh, these guys were I Guess you would call them militia not in, in today's uh, Terms you would call them militia back back in the in the day it was just the beginning, just, start, just at the beginning stages of what what people call survivalists. Okay, so there was no no such animal, you know, as as a survivalist or a, a militia guy uh, member, you know, or anything like that. But if if you understand what I'm saying, you know, it, it, we we were starting to to kind of figure out that these are the types of people that we were dealing with. OK, a person with a survivalist mentality or a militia mentality or a military background, you know. So and we started kicking things around and say, well, maybe we have uh, maybe it's some some uh, uh, military folks from Homestead Air Force Base, which is about 20, 30 miles south of Miami. You know, so so, you know, we kind of played with that idea and then we said, well, maybe it, it could be retired guys, retired military guys, because these guys were like i said they were a cut above you know your street you know criminal okay you know their 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 style their tactics it, it was just they were they were too i, I don't want to say precise but they were they were obviously from from an from a, uh, a performance standpoint they were a lot more polished and 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 experienced than than the average you know street rat you know so but uh, now getting back to um, the, the case, you know, finally taking a turn for us uh, on March 1st, uh, 1986. Oh, but let's go back to the robbery on the 10th. We recovered the, the gold Monte Carlo that they were using. Um, you know, we had descriptions the car was gold, the car was yellow, the car was green, the car was brown. You know, so, you know, we, we had various descriptions, you know, we really couldn't, couldn't put, you know, put a color on it. We had a, it was two doors, it was four doors, you know, that how So, you know, again, people in distress, you know, don't, don't make, necessarily make the best witnesses, but on the, on the January 10th robbery, uh, the robbery car was recovered. And that's when, uh, the FBI find out that the, um, the car had been, belonged to, uh, Emilio Brielle and, uh, I went to interview the Brielle family in uh, central Miami and, um, I found out that the, uh, he was a young man. He was probably about 21 or 22 years old, I believe. Uh, he had gone target shooting at the Everglades and he never came back. And, um, unfortunately, uh, on March 1st, they found some human remains in the Everglades and, uh, the remains were identified positively identified as Amelia Brielle. So, um, He had gone out to target practice and ended up getting killed. He had a bullet hole right in the middle of his forehead right here.
0: So they they executed him.
1: Yeah, they just basically, you know, just, you know, murdered him. You know, so simple.
0: Now, was there Uh, ever a point where you're doing this with Brielle, and you think that that family is possibly involved in this?
1: You know, initially, I I, I suspected that uh, Emilio may have been part of the gang, because uh, I, I think I may have mentioned it in the book, there was something odd about the, uh, when we ran the tags and, and Metro told me that it had been a Miami PD uh, case, not a Metro County PD. Um, they said, you know, they said something, something was off on the case. And, and as when I interviewed the family, it, it was just a matter of language barrier, you know, Spanish versus you know English, you know, and they're trying to Fill out, you know, English forms, and and they don't speak English, and it, it was just a, a comedy of errors, you know. And um, once I interviewed the mom and dad, it, I I am, you know, came to the conclusion, one hundred percent conclusion, that the kid was not involved, you know, because he was a missing person, you know, he was it disappeared, and then sure enough, you know, uh, about uh, forty five days later, they find his body, you know, his remains in the Everglades, you know, so. It, it was an unfortunate ending to a, a, an already bad situation, you know, so, but then c- continuing with the Everglades, uh, about 10 days later on March 12th, Jose Calazo was at the same location in the Everglades, Target practicing, where Emilio Brielle had disappeared. Okay, so, and Jose Calazo didn't know anything about it, you know, so he, he just went out there. He had his .22 rifle and I think a 22 pistol. You know, he was out there target practicing. And um, he survived, you know, and that's the reason I can tell you this information, you know, even though I'm get kind of getting ahead of the story. Um, he said he saw a white pickup truck driving to the Everglade clearing where he was shooting. And he looked over and saw two white guys, you know, in, in the truck and they got out and he's pointing in a certain direction saying hey I'm shooting this way and they kind of acknowledge you know in other words you you don't, you don't want to be shooting this way and somebody else is <laughs> shooting right. shooting sideways towards you you know so so you know it's kind of like a, a gentleman's agreement hey we we're all shooting in the same direction you know so so he continues shooting and he said about 10 or 15 minutes later he, his spidey senses kind of started tingling and he said, he turned around and there's the two white guys behind him. Um, one of them had a, had, a, had a mini 14 and the other one had a revolver in his hand. You know, it's like, what the hell, you know? And uh, the guy with the revolver said, okay, dude, you know, we want your wallet. We want your keys. We want your car. We want your guns. And, you know, what are you going to say? You know, you're, you've you got an, a rifle aimed at your chest and a, and a revolver aimed at, at the other half of your chest. You know, you're going to comply. You know, hey, listen. Take everything you want. Take anything you want. You know, take my shoes even. Okay, but just you know, don't hurt me. Okay, that's the plan. If you comply, you know, let them let them do their thing. Let them take what they want. You know, nine times out of ten, you know, everything should be okay. But in this particular case, it wasn't. Okay, because Mr. Calazo uh, said that once he complied the guy with the revolver got real close to him and, you know, and kind of was pointing, pointing the gun, pointing the revolver at him, and saying, okay, dude, turn around and walk towards that lake. And, you know, being an inquisitive person, you might ask, why? And that's what Kalauso does. why? He says, <laughs> shut up, turn around, and walk towards that lake, you know? so And, and he kind of grabs him. And spins him around and sticks a gun in, in his back, you know. And and at that point, you know, it doesn't take a, a, a rocket science, scientist to figure out that this, this is not good. This is a bad thing, you know. And Calazo said, "Hey, you know what? It became obvious they were going to walk me over towards the lake and kill me, and then just dump my body in the lake." You know. So uh, Calazo said he was kind of dragging his feet, <laughs> trying to keep. As far away from the lake as possible, you know, and the individual behind him, you know, kept sticking his uh, the the muzzle of his revolver, you know, in his back, you know, and hey, hurry up, hurry up. And uh, the interesting thing about Collazo is that he's just a John Q. citizen. Okay, he's just a regular guy, uh, and, and I don't mean this in any disrespect when when I say he he's he wasn't anything special. Okay he sold mattresses. He sold, he was a salesman. Okay. He didn't have, he wasn't a, a trained professional, like a military guy or a police officer. Okay. He was just a regular person, but uh, I'm sure somewhere along the line, he has seen some uh, Bruce Lee Kung Fu movie, you know, where you've got your hands up, you know, you got a gun in, in, in your back, you know, and, and, you know, he's probably seen that, that scene where you spin around, the side and you use the use the side of your arm to brush away the 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 arm or hand that's got the gun you know in your back and you take it off your center line you know you, you you want that gun off your center and you want it off to the side somewhere okay and that's what he did you know it just you know just a you know a chance but he wanted to survive. He wanted to live. So he did that. And then he gets the gun off his center line and then he's fighting for the gun. You know, uh, the individual that uh, we later identified as Maddox and him were fighting for the gun. <clears throat> and, um, uh, as they are fighting for the gun between them, the gun goes off once or twice and then, uh, the concussion or, or maybe even, the uh, burns from the, from the, uh, the, the shot going off, you know, and the cylinder probably loosened his hand. And then he shot once through the, the the palm of his left hand. And the second shot hit him in the shoulder, the right shoulder. Okay, so he takes a hit in the hand and then he takes a hit in the shoulder. And the third shot hits him in the face, okay? And um, all things being equal, you know, you know, you get shot in the face and I would say 95% of the time, uh, it's a pretty fatal shot, you know, 95, 95 times out of a hundred. <clears throat> but, uh, this time it wasn't that 5% chance. Um, and, um, I, I told, I told my, uh, my, when I lecture, uh, officers and trainees and stuff, um, there is such a thing as as luck, okay. And I tell him, hey, you can't plan your life on luck. You can't plan an arrest on luck. You know, you you know, you you plan you plan your you make your plans on facts, okay, and good good training and good good tactics. But uh, let me show the audience uh, if you are shot with this. Uh, the traje- trajectory of a bullet going into your face like this. Okay. Where is that bullet going to go? It's going to go straight through your face, through your, you know, head and come out the back of your spinal cord uh, or the b- brainstem. Okay. I mean, all things being equal, t- you know, however, colossus was having a good day, <laughs> all things considered. He was shot instead of being shot at this angle, he was shot at, this angle oops yeah at that angle right there okay Okay. it makes makes a huge difference okay you see if you see right there the the round is gonna go along the side of my head as opposed to you know the brainstem The, the round goes through his face through the nasal passages and breaks the the teeth on his upper jaw area and it comes out the back of his ear Oops. comes out the back of his ear like this right here okay um for the, the audience uh do not try this at home okay leave it to the professionals okay <laughs> don't go out in the backyard and say hey let, let's try that colazo shot you know see see if it'll go through my nasal passages and out my the back of my ear no Uh, Guys, that's like a one in a million shot, okay? I mean, think of all the, you know, important stuff that's up here. (laughs) You know, he he was lucky because uh, this part of your face is basically hollow. Right. Okay, you've got your nasal passages and and, and stuff like that. I mean, important stuff that you need, mind you, but (laughs) but it's not like your brain, (laughs) your brain, (laughs) your cranial crank crankshaft, you know, and, and your brainstem, you know. So but all things being equal, he got lucky. Okay. Now what happens when you get shot in the face like that? You go unconscious. I mean it, the concussive hit hit and, and the and the the stunning of the nerve the nerves in your face and in your head, you know, it, it, it renders you unconscious. It's like getting punched in the face, you know, by a boxer pointing you know, you're gonna you're gonna pass out and that's what happened. He he passed out, he fell fell down. And this is speculation on my part. I think uh, the shooter, who ended up being uh, Maddox, saw that the, the the hit was to the face and he probably assumed it was a killing shot. And like I said, 95 times out of 100, it would be. Okay, so I've been asked, why didn't he shoot uh, Calazo more times? And again, speculation on my part. Uh, he had a six shot revolver. Okay, they were fighting over the revolver. A couple of shots go off in between them. He shot through the hand, he shot through the shoulder, and he shot in the face. At that point, I think uh, the very last round that hit Klauser in the face was round number six. That's why uh, Maddox did not shoot Klauser when he was down on the ground. Okay, because I guarantee you if he'd have had more, he probably pointed the gun at him and went click, click, you know, as he goes, okay, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm empty. You know, at that point, he's not going to, you know, open the cylinder, drop the, the, you know, the the shell casings and load six more right there. They wanted to get the heck out of Dodge because they just shot and killed somebody. You know, they didn't want to be hanging around. You know, they grabbed all this stuff and took off. Now, the interesting part about Collazo, when he came to, you know, eventually he came to, he looked around and he was alone. His car was gone, the pickup, the white pickup truck was gone, you know, and he goes, oh, God, you know, he, he probably was surprised to wake up, you know. Um, but we interviewed him, and he had to make a choice, okay? It's like, what, what the hell do I do now? He was one mile, about nine-tenths of a mile from the highway, okay? He was on a dirt road into the Everglades, and uh, he had to make a choice. Do I stay here and hope someone drives into this you know, dirt road full of ruts and trash and stuff to rescue me? Or do I try to do something to, to rescue myself? You know, and that's called the will to survive, the will to, to live. And I tell people, I say, hey, nobody can give you that except one person. And that person is you, the individual. <laughs> and Calazo had a strong will to, to survive because he said, man, I want to live. I, I, you know, I've got to help myself. So he starts crawling. And at some point in time, he actually gets up and staggers, you know. I mean, he's shot through the shoulder and the hand and the face, okay. He's disoriented and in pain, bleeding. And uh, he managed to to crawl, stagger, nine-tenths of a mile to the highway. It's called the Tamiami Trail. And he tried to flag down cars that were passing by. And I kind of say this in in a joking manner, but it's the truth. What would you do if you saw a muddy bloody person walking out of the Everglades, you know uh, onto the highway and he's trying to flag you down? And you probably you probably think it was a swamp monster. That's how every thing.
0: horror movie starts.
1: Exactly right. You know, you're not going to stop in the in the swap to pick up some some money-staggering person. You know, it's like you know, it's he's got to be a werewolf or a vampire or something. You know, so plus you know, Floridians and Miamians are, are smarter than that. They don't want to get involved. You know, it's like, hey, dude, it's on you. You know, I, you know, they just spit on by, and this is the honest to God's truth. You know, the only people that stopped were tourists, they were from up north someplace, either Wisconsin or Minnesota someplace, but they were a couple on, on their honeymoon. They were driving from Naples, Florida, across to Miami to uh, to get to a cruise ship or something. <clears throat> and the tourists stopped. Okay, all the other hardcore Miamians, you know, said, hey pal, you know, it's just another day in Miami just another, you know, shot, injured person walking the streets, you know. So, so uh, Calazzo, you know, was lucky in that somebody ended up stopping to help him, you know, and, and uh, he, he told him where the nearest phone was, which was a, about a mile back in the opposite direction. There was a, a circle K or a Seven Eleven at that, uh, in, in that location. So they drove him back to that area. They called not, the, the store, called 911, an ambulance responded, and we had our first Live witness that uh, actually interact with these two robbers. Okay, and then that's where we got our description. Two white males, six foot, six foot one, 200 pounds, fit, uh, slender, uh, brown hair, mustache. Both of them had mustaches. One of them had a bigger mustache than the other one. White pickup truck. And uh, the fact that uh, they stole his car, we had the description and, and make and model of his car. OK, so that was on, on May 12th. OK, so um, on, uh, God, when was it? May. I'm um, not May. Did I say May? March 12th. March 12th. On uh, March. Uh, What's seven days? Twelve. March 19th or March 20th. Uh, a robbery occurred at 138th, 136th Street and South Dixie Highway. And <clears throat> we have a, a law enforcement eyewitness um, who saw the two robbers running out of a bank, jump into a black car. And when they backed up to, to get out of the parking space, they backed right up to his car. And he looked at the tag and he, and he verified the tag, NTJA91. And it was called Jose Calazo's car. Now, uh, that started tying everything together. You know, the Emilio Brielle shooting at the Everglades, you know, the stolen uh, gold Monte Carlo, the stolen black Monte Carlo and Jose Calazo. So again, as you mentioned earlier in in, in your questions, you know, it's like we were starting, the noose was starting to get tighter and tighter around these guys, okay? Um, They just didn't realize it, okay? But you know, we 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 had a good idea what what was what what was occurring, you know. So um, the rest of it was just continuing to investigate. And you know, as Gordon McNeil said, you know, sometimes you got to make your own luck. So um, he um, he sent out uh, the squad uh, one day after Collazo uh, was interviewed. He he uh, sent the squad out to, in South Florida, South Miami, I should say looking for any white pickup truck or, or the black Monte Carlo. Okay. And, um, just basically, you know, he just flooded the area with agents, you know, looking for a specific type of car and pickup truck, hoping to get lucky and, and get the tag off the pickup truck. And the idea was to take all the tags that recorded and find out who the registered owners are for, for the, for these vehicles and request driver's license photos. For the owners, okay. That uh, you know that that that's a an intelligent lead because you know you you know you you're actually trying to make your own luck. You know you're trying to identify who these drivers, who the owners are. And as luck would have it, one of the agents uh, that was down there that day got the license number for uh, a uh, an individual by the name of Maddox, a white pickup truck. Just happened to see it, and he took the tag down. OK, and that was sent in with the stack of about 120 tags, you know, went up to Tallahassee, the DMV in Tallahassee. It was processed. We got uh, the uh, copies of the uh, driver's license photos. And one of the photos in the pile was what belonged to the Maddox. OK, and people say, well, what difference does that make? Well, it makes a huge difference. You know, I mean, if, if it had been a week earlier, um, the outcome of the shooting could have been way or the investigation could have been way different you know because you take all the people uh the the photos eliminate all the women okay eliminate all the uh the uh black people or the hispanic people eliminate all the old people and you kind of narrow it down to uh middle-aged white males okay and then you take you know you, you whittle it down from 120 hopefully down to, to like a manageable number like 30 or 25 30 and then you take those photos and then you go back to your witness jose Calazo and show him the driver's license photos of the people that uh you know that we developed and he would have seen the picture of maddox because he, he told us he said he will never forget that guy's face he said he said he was a cold blooded killer. Okay, and he shot me. He said just cold to he said he didn't have a, a an ounce of feeling in his body. He said he just shot me. And I guarantee you, if if we had shown those photos that we call that a photo spread to Collazo, he would have picked Maddox out of out of all those photos, and it would have been a whole different twist of the investigation, we would have had an address, we would have had a, uh, the description, you know, who we, we were dealing with. And it, it could have been a whole different arrest scenario as opposed to what happened on April 11th, you know, so time and chance.
0: <laughs> and <clears throat> April 11th, 1986, this is the day. Um, I want to kind of set it up, but this is where I want to back off it. And I want you to just walk through it because I think it will be more personal coming from you because when you first start this, you don't really have any emotion. But as you get into this five minutes is all it is, you turn into a completely different person by the end of it. And oh so, uh,
1: I mean, totally. You know, I, I I in a modest way, I consider myself to be a very kind and gentle, you know. Angelic person, you know. (laughs) I'm kidding. Not that day. (laughs) No, not that day. But before we start on April 11th, you know, let me go back to April 10th because it's important for for the audience to understand why was the surveillance initiated on April 11th. Okay. These are the reasons that uh, that fate got us out there on that day, April 10th. Ben Ben Grogan, the case agent, and uh, the supervisor Gordon McNeil, are out at firearms training on Thursday, and Gordon McNeil is is discussing the case with Ben Grogan, and he tells Ben Ben and says, "Hey Ben, how about if we set up a surveillance tomorrow, and, you know on your guys?" And Ben says, hey, "Gordon, I I'll take all the help I can get, you know." But he said. Uh, why he said why tomorrow and gordon gordon tells him said well you know what ben it's been 3 weeks since uh, the last robbery that was at the uh, when the when the police officer saw them backing out of the parking space and he got the tag it's been 3 weeks um they only got about $8000 on that hit and tomorrow is friday and 50% of the robberies occur on Friday. The other 50% happen on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So he said 50% of the hits happened on Fridays. 3 weeks ago they only got $8,000. He said I think they're due to hit another bank. And tomorrow being Friday, I think I think you we know we'll stand a good chance that they might come out. And Ben said, okay, Gordon, that, I mean, that's intuitive logic. I mean, intuitive policing, intuitive, uh, I mean, logical. Uh, so um, that's what happened. And that's when Ben called the squad and, and talked to the bankruptcy coordinator, Steve Warner, and said, hey, uh, Steve, you know, uh, see see how many guys you can get for a surveillance tomorrow. Uh, we're going to run a surveillance tomorrow morning from 9 to, to 1 in, in, in southwest see if we can catch these guys you know maybe we'll catch them in the act or something and you know he explained it to steve and then steve made the announcement in the squad i was there uh, in the squad area when steve made the announcement and he said anybody who can help help you know because uh you know you can't you really can't dictate to other guys you know what their schedule is because if somebody has court court takes precedence okay if someone is on leave and he's not in the office he's away i mean you can't you can't call him and in Atlanta, and say, hey, I need you here tomorrow. <laughs> you know? I mean, that that doesn't make sense, you know. And then other people have, you know, get sick or have have uh, other, you know, things that they're doing. So, we ended up with the eleven guys from the uh, squad and three three guys from the homestead office, you know, the the satellite office down there. And that's how the surveillance started. You know, there's been uh, there's been some some comments and criticism. You know, hey, listen, if you guys knew these guys are going to be out there, if you guys had a tip that these guys were going to be out there. You should have been better prepared. And my answer to that is like, well, we didn't, you know, have a tip. It was, it was like, I just described it to you. It's intuitive policing. You know, Gordon said, Hey, I think they're due.
0: I think a I, lot of people I would a, call that a hunch.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what he said. He said, I've got a hunch. He said, I think, I think they might hit tomorrow. And you know what, in, in, in defense of us, Okay, again, you say, well, you, you know, you were, should have been better prepared. I got news for you, you know, the, the, these critics. Um, everybody that was out there that day was armed with everything they were legally allowed to carry. We were carrying everything that we were issued, okay? Le- you know, l- legally issued agency weapons, Okay. I can't go out there and, and grab a 44 Magnum, you know, if I'm not authorized to, to have one. Okay, I can't, you, you know, use a double uh, plus P plus plus plus, you know, uh, Teflon ammo in my, in my gun, if it's not authorized, you know, so when people say, well, you you guys should have been better prepared, you should have had better arms. It's like, guys, you know, we, we serve, an an agency with rules and regulations, you know, so we, everybody was carrying what they were legally allowed to carry period in a story. You know, we were carrying six six shots and the SWAT guys were carrying uh, pistols, 15 round uh, magazines. So, you know, it, it, it is what it is. I mean, you know, you, you go with what you got, you know, (laughs) you, you don't go with, with what you wish you had, you go with what you have, you know, so, so anyway, so the morning, uh, go to the office and uh, everybody's you know, running around, you know, the squad, you know, getting their, their weapons uh, secured and uh, armor, you know, getting notes and stuff, you know, guys that, you know, that are some guys are apologizing because they have other leads that they're covering that were already set up either with bank managers or had to have to go up to Fort Lauderdale or have to go to court so hey man I'd go out there if I could but you know I have got this previous uh you know appointment and so on so anyway we hit the road and we get uh, we get to the um, Home Depot uh, parking lot parking lot I think it's 148th street and uh, or 140th or 130th I forget exactly but we meet at the parking lot and we have a briefing and we have a total of 14 agents in 11 cars. And uh, we get all the info that's available. Uh, the stolen Monte Carlo, black and TJA 91. We had the, uh, Metro-Dade County had uh, prepared uh, the uh, sketches for these two guys. And um, th- those were passed out. And we had a description of the white pickup truck. We also had uh, a, a missing person, a uh, female missing person, that had disappeared from a, an apartment complex in the area. And we suspected that she had been killed for her car, which was like, um, you know, fits the normal MO for these guys. You know, they kill somebody for their car. There was but, actually know, we...
0: two cars, right? The Two possible yeah. cars that you could have been looking for. I think it was a Suzuki Samurai and something else. Correct.
1: Correct. Yeah. And we they actually found one of the tags of the missing ladies uh, in their homes. So, I mean, they, they did kill this person, you know, they never found her body though. Uh, so, uh, you know, they, they were stone, stone cold killers, you know? So, so anyway, we, we get the, the information we set up the surveillance areas in Ford, four of, of, of the uh, different spots on uh, South Dixie highway. It's high U S highway one, you know, uh, goes all the way from Key West up to Maine, you know, so, um, um, so the majority of the robberies had happened between 104th Street and 80, 80, 188th Street. So that, that's where the majority of the robberies had happened. So uh, we picked out four major locations where where banks were located, and we divided the 14 agents into into four teams. Um, my location was three agents. 136th Street was five agents. 148th was three agents and 188 was three agents so that's the best balance that we could come up with and um, the rest of it was help. okay uh, go to your spots you, you know you have the the initiative you decide how you how you're going to deploy you know because you know, I can't tell you how to deploy. If I'm a, if I'm at 130th Street and you're at 148th, at I can't tell you, hey, get north of the bank or get west of the bank or whatever. You know, you have to figure out the best place for you, the most advantageous place for you to be to respond to an emergency, you know? So, and that's what happened. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, at about 9.25 in the morning, Ben Grogan calls on the radio says attention all units we're behind a black vehicle two door florida tag ntj891 you know and i was so stunned um, i knew we could we could we could run across these guys but i have to I have to be candid with you it's like i was stunned when when we when we only found them you know absolutely and what so, what stunned me the most was the fact that that tag, the incident had been in the Miami Herald. The incident had been on on, on the TV news, and brazen. The, the 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 tag and the description of the car was on a bolo, you know, all the way from uh, you know uh, Orlando and, and Tampa, all the way south to Key West. And I'm thinking, man, these guys are, are either very stupid or very brazen. You know, it's like I just, you know, couldn't believe it. So from that point forward, it was we we played catch up because when when Ben finally an, announced his location, he was I was at 130, 130th Street, and uh, Ben was already north of my location. <clears throat> so uh,
0: Ed, can I can I interrupt you for just a second because I sure. thought this was this was where it got really interesting. Uh, before we get too far in the story, I want to talk about because you mention it a lot in there the domino effect of all <laughs> of these things that happened that morning. Uh, Mm -hmm. The first being a shotgun that was supposed to be in a vehicle was actually moved. Mm -hmm. Uh, You had uh, someone going to the bathroom, another person going to the bathroom. Uh, You have Ben not wearing his glasses. Uh, You have no,
1: no no, Ben, Ben was wearing his glasses, but he lost uh, them in, in, in the sequence of uh, the car.
0: Okay. Uh, you had a gun that supposedly one of the guys had tucked underneath his leg. He thought had Mm -hmm. slid out during this entire process. And, and of course this is all happening at different points and I'm going to let you get to those. I just want to put all of the domino effects that you said, uh, at one point they think a gun has slid and gone out of a car. So that person is unarmed. Uh, the suspects had heavy weaponry. Um, it was just kind of a colossal, like to me, as you wrote it a perfect storm of right. everything coming together
1: right right and the thing is you know as you've described it again you know for for the listener we were in in four different locations okay you uh, my location the northernmost most location steve warner uh contacted the bank manager at our location and the bank manager said, "Hey, you know what? I, I don't I don't know who you are. You look like a bum or whatever." She told him, and because uh, he was asking her about, "Hey, what's what's the schedule for the armored truck deliveries?" Because you know that's probably when they'll hit. So uh, she said, "Hey, I don't know who you are. Go away." So he went away. She calls the office and. To verify Steve's employment, and then the office verified it. So then the office calls on the radio for Steve. Steve had gone to get some gas, so I, I answered the the call for him. I said, "Okay, I'll make sure he knows uh, that the, the bank teller, the bank manager, wants to talk to him now." So when Steve comes back uh, in, uh, in service, I let him know. I said, "Hey, the bank manager wants to talk to you now." So he responds back to the bank, and he he calls out, says, "Hey, I'm I'm." Uh, out of service at the bank. Okay, so he turns the car off. Okay. <clears throat> and 5 seconds later, that's when Ben calls out. Okay, that's one, okay. Um at 136th Street, Terry Nelson tells his team, "Hey, listen, I need to go to the bathroom. I'm going to be out of service for for a, mm-hmm. a few minutes." Okay. Again, it's a separate separate, separate location, uh, you know, no you know, no harm will no fall, right? 148th Street, Bobby Ross tells his little team, say, hey, listen, guys, I need to make a head call, okay? So uh, I, I'm gonna be you know, out of service for a few minutes, okay? Three separate locations, three agents, okay? And did it have an impact? Individually, no, but collectively, it had a huge impact, okay? Because those three agents, uh, Steve Warner had a 12-git shotgun, uh, Terry Nelson had a, a fully automatic MP5 machine gun in, in nine millimeter and Bobby Ross had a, a full auto M16 in, in with him okay and could could those weapons have made a difference in the gunfight absolutely absolutely but time and chance time and chance happens you know I mean the domino effect that none of those weapons were were in play during the gunfight because you know they just you know fate. <clears throat> now the weapons. Richard Minasi stuck stuck his uh, took his uh, revolver out of his holster and placed it underneath his right thigh, and I, I've got to be honest with you, I I had done that before on surveillance. When I was in Washington D.C., uh, we worked a lot of night surveillances. Because uh, we were on a on a terrorism squad, you know, we had a lot of things going. You mentioned, you know, the the Central American thing. Well, by by uh, 1984, the Central American thing had, was had, was percolating. Okay, so there was a lot of activity going on, you know. So we were doing a lot of night surveillances, and you're wearing uh, a jacket to cover your weapon, and you're in a car wearing a seat belt. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you're right-handed, the seat belt, you know, is always on your on your right hip, you know. So, <clears throat> if you need a gun, if you need to get to your gun real quick, sometimes, you know, the the jacket and the seat belt kind of get in the way of you reaching for for the weapon, you know. So, I, I I used to take my gun out of out of the holster and place it underneath my right thigh, but I never drove. <clears throat> with the weapon like that. I always, whenever I wanted to, whenever I had to move the car, I would always take the weapon back and I stick it in my holster. Okay. Uh, these two agents didn't do that. You know, they, they put the weapon underneath their thigh while the car is driving. That was uh, Richard Manazzi and my partner, John Hanlon. And I didn't even see him do it. And we were in the same car. I didn't see him do it. <coughs> Excuse me. So it's just a you know, little change of events like that. Nobody, was planning in getting involved in a series of car crashes. Okay, Uh, Manousey was, uh, him specifically was involved in two major car crashes. Uh, We were, uh, John Hanlon and I were involved in a series of car crashes hitting each other like this, two cars hitting each other like constantly back and forth, back and forth. At that some point in that sequence of bumps, uh, John Hanlon, well, when we slammed uh, up against the uh, cement wall at the end of the chase, uh, his gun slid out from under under his uh, leg, and he, he could he in, in in his haste he couldn't find it, so he went to his ankle gun. Unfortunately, Richard Manazzi didn't have an ankle gun, so he um he thought his weapon had flown out the door, and landed on the street, which in reality it was still in the car, you know. So, but you know it it, it is what it is. I mean, it's the truth. You know, I'm not trying to hide anything. You know, I'm trying to just put it out there, you know, and, and uh, explain to people what happened. You know, so <laughs> is it was it unfortunate? Yes, absolutely. Uh, was it a learning point? Absolutely. You know, nobody, anybody who reads that the that the little incident that happened will probably never, ever take a gun out of their holster and <laughs> stick it underneath their thigh. <laughs> so. Uh, but, you know, that happened. Um uh, getting back to the sequence of, of, uh, the surveillance, um, John Hanlon was driving and I was a passenger and we sped North, uh, ca- trying to catch up with Ben Grogan, which we, we did. We got up to him at 117th street. <coughs> Actually, when, uh, uh, the, the stolen Monte Carlo made a right turn on 117th goes down one city block. Uh, he's driving east and he goes to 81st uh, road and then takes a right and goes south on 81st and goes to 120th and hits a stop sign and then he makes another right turn westbound on 120th. So in those three right turns, that's a common, you know, if you want to find out somebody's following you, they say hey, make three three turns in the same direction, and if they're still behind you, they're following you. You know, so at that point they made three three uh, right turns. I don't know whether it was planned or just happenstance, but uh, at that point they knew somebody was behind them because uh, on on eighty first Road we were going at about ten or fifteen miles an hour on on, on a residential street. And it's like.
0: I think they're on you know, to you.
1: Yeah, no kidding. It's like, wow, you know, it became real obvious, you know. So, but as again, luck would have it, when they turned right on 120th, they made a left turn on 82nd Avenue. And at that point, Ben Grogan called out, Felony car stop. Let's do it. Okay. Now, from the time Ben Grogan said, Attention all units until he said, Felony car stop was three minutes. Okay. Three minutes to surveillance. Three minutes to plan and figure out how you how are you gonna how are you going to do the car stop. Okay. <clears throat> there are two types of car stops. Generally speaking, there's compliant and non-compliant. Okay. And uh, unfortunately, the uh, the subjects or or, or the, the other driver has has a boat. OK, uh, you want to stop at a certain point, you know, and he has a vote. He can say, no, I'm not going to stop here or yes, I'm going to stop here or no, I want to make a U-turn and go in the opposite direction. There's really not much you can do to control that except use force. You know, you can block or, or crash or, or fire gunshots at, at the at the other car. Mm-hmm. There's many options, OK, but not not all of them are, are, are good options. You know, I mean, <laughs> at some point in time, you may have to actually block or ram uh, another car to make it stop you know so so as soon as ben grogan said finally car stop jerry Duff put the uh the police light on the dashboard and turned the siren on and that's when ben um sp- uh, pulled out of uh, out of line and tried to get in front of the uh solo Monte carlo to keep it from to block it you know so um, he was trying to try to block it from from continuing to go forward <clears throat> and uh at that point we stopped going at 10 or 15 miles an hour and the rpms in the cars just, just started skyrocketing you know it, we went from 10 15 miles an hour up to 35 40 miles an hour in the blink of an eye and that's when all the car crashes started happening you know and uh make a long story short we ended up crashing up against a cement wall uh in front of a uh, the duplex. It was 12201 uh, Southwest uh, 82nd Avenue. We we crashed directly across the street from, from that address. And um, Richard Manousey had rammed them, uh, ram, rammed the, the stolen car uh, from behind uh, because he saw the passenger come up and aim a long barrel weapon at, at me and John Hanlon uh, across his, the drivers. His partner's face so he said oh shoot you know he's there he's going to shoot at ed and john so i better distract him so he rams him from behind and bumps he rammed him hard okay because the car is propelled forward and as as i told you we were doing a series of crashes okay and he propels the the stolen money car he just propels it forward you know so we lost all contact with the car and, and we ended up crashing against the wall
0: well, at, so, at that point, you're face-to-face with the driver, right? I mean, you guys are within a foot of each other, two foot of each other.
1: You know what, though? If the windows had not been rolled up, I, I could have reached out and touched them. Oh, That's how close man. we were because we, we were – we were actually bumper-locked, you know, at, at some point in time. And know? what speed
0: do you like, think you're going at right now,
1: Ed? Oh, God, you know, we were, we were going, like I said, we were going 30, 40 miles an hour. It was just constant rocking and rolling back and forth, you know, crash, crash, crash. And, you know, forward, backward, forward, backward, you know, that type of stuff, you know. So, uh, yeah, it was at least, I mean, I'm speculating, you know, but it wasn't, it wasn't, it was it wasn't 10 miles an hour <laughs> like it was on the other street, okay? And it let me put it this way. When we, when we hit the cement wall, we were going at a, at a good clip, okay? And I wasn't wearing my seat belt. Um, under normal circumstances, uh, I probably would would probably would have injured myself from the car crash alone, okay? I mean, because I literally had to put my hands up like this, and I, uh, I used my, my hands and my elbows and my shoulders to accordion you know, you know, a, a Cordy and myself cushion the blow, you know, for, and keep my face from smashing up against the windshield, you know. So, um, and unbeknownst to me, they continued to, to make their left-hand U-turn. Manozzi had already rammed him hard from behind, so he said, what the heck, you know, I got not, I've already wrecked the car. I'm going to ram him again because he knew that, you know, we had to stop these guys. We could not let them escape. Okay. I mean, it, it was kind of like a, a telepathic signal, you know, these, we, we needed to stop these guys, period. Okay. So Manausi, when he saw that we crashed and he saw that they were circling to the left to make a U-turn to go back northbound, he said, what the hell, you know, I just rammed them almost like uh, T-boned them at, at the front end of their car. And they ended up being, uh, Manausi and, and the subject car ended up, ended up being pinned. Up against uh, some civilian cars in front of one two two zero one Southwest Eighty Second Avenue, <clears throat> and uh, everything came to a stop. Everything stopped, you know, and and I heard the silence. I mean, was, the silence was deafening. I mean, because before it was crashing and metal screeching and RPMs and you know just you know everything that cars can do, you know, in a in a demolition derby, you know. Uh, <laughs> And then all of a sudden it was total quiet. Okay. And it didn't last long. I mean, in my mind, it seems like it was quiet for 10 or 20 seconds, but in reality, it couldn't have been that long because I mean, everything started happening real quick. You know, I heard Ben Grogan and Jerry Dove, you know, come out of the, come out of their vehicles, yelling, FBI, police, put your hands up, put your hands up. And immediate, the immediate response was boom, boom, boom. (laughs) So I, it reminds me of naked gun stop shooting the gun i can't hear you. what are you saying
0: <laughs> <laughs> there's a
1: scene in the naked gun I forget what it, which one it was I'm,
0: I'm glad that you can look at this situation like that
1: <laughs> no don't shoot while you're talking i can't <laughs> hear you <laughs> so their answer was pretty clear you know so and the gunfight started it was like you know like i said, my perception was 10 or 20 seconds, but the reality of the situation was probably like a second or two of, of silence. And then boom, you know, the, as they say, the, the shit hit the fan, you know. So, um, And uh, it was on. I mean, the battle was on. The fight was on. So I knew where, where we had crashed up against a wall um, that uh, I had a, uh, the, the 12-gauge shotgun in, in, in my in my right hand. And I knew that I had loaded it with the double up buckshot and I was at least 45 to 50 yards away from the from the subjects. I'm thinking at this range, this this load is nothing. I mean, I'll I'll shoot the agents around the scene before I shoot the subjects in the car, you know, so I said, I got to get closer to use the weapon. <clears throat> so that's when I started running across the street, and John Hanlon ran across the street almost instantaneously as I did, You know, so we ran across the street. He went slightly to the right, and I was going to the nearest point of cover, but then I, I scanned to the left, and I saw Gordon McNeil, the supervisor, off to the left at, at the far left side of the perimeter, the line, <clears throat> and I said, well, you know, the weakest spot in this line is on the left, so I veered to my left, to reinforce Gordon McNeil. <clears throat> and um, I almost made it to his position. I was trying to get to his left side behind the engine block of Manaus's car. And uh, that is when I uh, tripped <laughs> my, my perception, you know, my, my mind was trying to fill in a gap, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, I could, I couldn't figure out what happened because one, one minute I'm, I'm looking straight ahead and literally the next 10th of a second, I'm looking straight up at the sky and I'm thinking, what the hell happened? You know, I mean, I'm, you know, going to reinforce Gordon and next thing I'm looking is up at the blue sky and I'm thinking, you know, how how did I get here? And I'm thinking, and and I'm trying to fill in this gap, you know, and I finally answered my own question. I think, well, you know what? I probably was, I was coming around the, the back of Gordon McNeil's car I, I, I'm deducing this. I must have rammed, run into the back of McNeil's car, the very corner uh, of the back, rear trunk area, because I must have cut it so close that I I actually hit it with my right hip and and I knocked myself backwards. Okay, because I'm on my back looking at the sky and I'm thinking, you. I mean, I admonish myself. You're stupid 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 for, for you know cutting it so close you know and then I, w- I was trying to use my my i had the shotgun in my right hand and i'm trying to use my left hand to um to um, push myself up and nothing's working you know and, you know every every everything perception changed <clears throat> before you know i had uh probably 60 percent of my hearing was intact. You know i started experiencing auditory exclusion uh i had uh not tunnel vision but i had narrow vision it wasn't quite tunneled to one point but it was not quite all the way at, you know at 180 degree you know in my in my line of sight <clears throat> but um, after i went on my back my whole perception changed you know i had a terrible ringing in my ears i couldn't hear anything at all and i felt like i was like working myself through molasses like it just felt like it was like slow slower you know and everything the the world around me slowed down everything was in slow motion okay and if you've ever experienced you know uh fight or flight you you know you know when when people say, "Hey, things started going into slow motion," in reality is, nothing goes into slow motion. What happens is your mind speeds up. Okay, you are thinking, and your mind is working so fast that your actions can't catch up with your mind. So it appears that you are going in slow motion you know so and that's what it felt like to me you know but my hearing was was what really caught me uh, by surprise because I, I i mean i just like totally lost everything and i had this real loud ringing in my ears i'm thinking god what the hell happened you know <clears throat> so uh, it took me a while to figure out you know what's going on and i'm watching gordon mcneil it's back; he's shooting his gun you know and then i see see gordon you know kick his Gun up, his arm up like this, turn his head up, brings his gun hand back down on the uh, dashboard. I mean, on, on, not on the dashboard, on the uh, hood of, the, of uh, the blue car he's hiding behind, and fired two shots. And I'm thinking, what the hell is Gordon doing? You know, it's like, is he like, like a, a cavalry charge, you know, I, I, I don't know. What, I didn't know what the heck he was doing with his right arm, you know. And then after he ran out of ammo, he, he retreated back behind his car to reload. And then after he retreated, it just dawned on me. I'm thinking, holy shit, Gordon was shot. I just saw Gordon McNeil shot, you know, and later I found out that Gordon had taken a 223 caliber rifle hit, right? Uh, uh, right oh, wow. through, right right through the, the hand right there can can you see it
0: i can it, see yeah uh, uh, uh,
1: yeah it kind of froze right there right between the index finger and the middle finger when he had his when he had his gun up like that okay and amazing how many westerns have you all seen you know, especially when, when I was a kid, you know, the the, the good guys always always wearing the, the white hat and the bad guys always wearing the black hat and the good guys too good to, to shoot the bad guy dead. OK, so we always shot him in the hand and, you know, the gun, you know, the, the bullet would hit the hand or the, the bullet would hit the gun and the gun would go flying out of the hand, you know, and OK, Black Bart, put your hands up, you know, so that, that type of stuff. I saw Gordon shot through, with a rifle round through Uh, these two fingers right there and He didn't the gun didn't fly out of his hand, you know, he just brought it back down and kept firing, you know But I didn't realize it until after the fact, you know, when I saw it happen I I didn't know what was going on, you know, so he retreats I'm still scanning for threats and it took me several seconds, maybe a minute To figure out what the hell's wrong with my body, okay, why I'm on my back Okay. And it wasn't until I I had to make a visual inspection of my, of my left side because it wasn't working. You know, my, my, my hand, you know, was, you know, I was trying to, trying to get it to to push, to put pressure down on the ground to help me up and, um, it wasn't working. So I, I had to make a, I had to take my eyes off the thread points and look down at my, um, at my left side you know and that's when I got a humongous shock okay I saw uh, I saw that there was something bloody and, and broken apart next to me and I'm thinking what the hell is that it looked like roadkill I mean literally like like some rabbit got hit by a truck or something you know a semi got run over by a semi it just exploded you know and stuff and um um it was so so bizarre so foreign I said that can't be my arm there's no way in hell that could be my arm. So I, I took the shotgun, laid it across my chest, reached over with my right hand, and I picked up my left arm, you know, and I, I held it up in front of me like this, and in front of my eyes, and I'm thinking, holy shit, it's attached. It was attached by the uh, the muscles underneath in my forearm here and the skin. You know, everything else was just broken and loose. You know, and the, the only thing holding it together was this this blab of skin down here and I'm, and I, I'm shaking it like this. I'm like, Holy shit, it's a test. You know, it's my arm, you know? So that's when I, I kind of, I kind of looked at it and I'm thinking, you know, and I just threw it off to to, to the left side, you know, it landed in the dirt, you know, I mean, there's nothing I could do to it. You know, I mean, at that point it was just, I throw it on the dirt, grab my shotgun and continue to scan for a threat. And there's something called uh, during these types of events, you know, people have weird thoughts They're like, hey, did I leave my st- uh, oven on or did I close the garage door? That type of stuff. Well, my intrusive intrusive thought was amputate your arm later. OK, that's what I thought, you know, I stuck, like, and then I continued to scan. I mean, that, that's how bad it was. It was in, intuitive. I knew, hey, you're going to have to amputate your arm later. <clears throat> so just continue working, you know, it's just <laughs> kind of like, hey, listen, I think I want to have hamburgers for lunch today. You know, <laughs> you know, how many times has anybody thought to amputate your leg later today? Okay. You know, <laughs> so, you know, instinctively, I knew that it was a serious injury, but I I, I knew that I could survive. For several more minutes before, you know, I was in danger of bleeding to death. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I was bleeding, there's no doubt about that. But uh, again, intuitively speaking, you know, instinctively speaking, I knew that I had several minutes before anything bad happened. So and right at that precise moment, there was still a threat out there that could that somebody, you know, bullets are flying. I didn't know where the subjects were. And I was worried that somebody was going to sneak up behind me or around one of the cars and shoot me in the face. Now, that would be a bad thing, you know, getting shot in the face. It would be a bad thing. I don't think
0: you're going to get that one in a million shot. <laughs>
1: no, not, not not like Jose Calazo, you know. So so I, I'm concentrating, you know, and I'm thinking, what the heck, you know. I mean, it's, it's taken a long time, you know. And then I noticed something. Uh, out of the left side of my uh, eyesight, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking I see something flying, but I, I can't see what's going on. So that's when I realized I'm thinking, oh, crap, that doesn't look good. You know, so I, I actually laid the shotgun across my chest again. And I took my right hand and I, I went up to my the left side of my forehead like this. And I'm thinking, God, it was arterial bleeding. Uh, you know, it's like, what the hell? So I'm I'm, I'm actually expecting to feel my skull all mushy and stuff up here, you know. And I kept going like this, you know. I'm thinking, well, I feel the bone. So then I took the palm of my hand like this, and I went like this. I'm thinking, it, it's it's intact. And what I was doing uh, unknowingly was I was actually compressing the the injury. Okay. And when I was doing it, you know, push putting my palm against my head, uh, I was actually compressing the 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 injury had split my my skin and split the uh, had severed the uh, temporal artery <clears throat> and uh, just a compression uh, slapping my head like that was enough to, to to put some of the flap of skin over the artery that to, to stop it from spraying it was still bleeding but it, it stopped spraying because you know i gotta tell you if you've never seen your your own arteries spraying blood it's a little disconcerting it really is you know what? it's like you see
0: is it true that that you saw blood squirting like five to ten feet away from you?
1: Yeah, it, it was it was actually squirting past my feet. <laughs> you know, it was like eight. It it would it was like two, two or three or four. No, not four. Two or three feet past my the my my actual physical feet. Okay, so it was like squirting. You know, from my head to where it landed, it was got had to be like eight or nine or ten feet away. You know. And that's a little, you know, that's a little frightening. Okay, in case you've never seen it. Well,
0: before. and that was my next question: Are you freaking out at, at at not freaking out, but are you starting to take stock right now? Because you look at your arm; well, it's you know useless.
1: What? Hon- honestly, you know, I, I you know, I, I when I when I stopped to, to you know when I stopped to analyze what was going on, I, and, and I realized what it was it was arterial bleeding so that's when I played I the shotgun and I examined myself and I'm thinking I am having a really bad day okay you know when I saw the arterial bleeding out of, out of my forehead somewhere around my head I'm thinking I am having a really bad day you know this this day can't get any worse you know all the arterial bleeding from your head is not a good sign you know so but again you know when I did this you know it you know you know God takes care of drunks and and you know and idiots you know because i when i was doing this I, I inadvertently just compressed it you know compressed the, uh, the 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 flesh and the and the flap of skin in the area and and it, it just kind of went over it and it stopped the arterial bleeding because the arterial bleeding was like i said disconcerting oozing blood is okay i mean i can't see it you know so so I, once it stopped spraying i'm thinking okay it's a good day you know so continue to, to try to survive you know so um But up until that point and even after this point, you know, and and it's something that I forget to tell people sometimes. I didn't know what happened. And it wasn't until I made a visual examination of my arm that I realized that I had been shot. Not once. I mean, once in the arm and then up here on the temple. Twice. And the miracle of having survived, you know, that is is a miracle in and of itself but the other side of it is there was no there was no sensation of pain i felt no pain at all and that that's what was so weird because I, I i kept trying to get my my arm my left arm to move and function because there was no pain i had no idea what had happened so people say how do you continue to function you know it's the body the body's a you know a miracle it's a, it's a tremendous machine as soon as I I suffered so much injury, so much trauma that my my system just shut down from pain. I felt no pain for the next five minutes. I mean, I continued to work and move around and do all kinds of stuff, and I felt no pain whatsoever. It wasn't until after the incident when everything was was solved and, and, and resolved and the adrenaline came down Okay, at that point, I experienced terrible pain. But at the time I was shot, you know, that, that was so bizarre. You know, I, I felt no pain whatsoever. But uh, it's an, an, an interesting sidebar there. But um, anyway, I continued to, to scan, scan, scan. And um, it, it, if I'm looking at my feet, that, that would be my 12 o'clock position. Uh, the gunfight, the gunfire, I should say, during the incident went from my 12 o'clock position off to my right to the one o'clock position farther to my right to the two o'clock and then to the three o'clock and then way off you know to the you know three or four o'clock position all the way to the right so <clears throat> i could i could sense my hearing was coming back you know i mean i could still had the ringing but I, I could sense that the gunfire was moving to my right so i couldn't see anything to my right so um uh, I started to crawl on my on my back using my shoulder blades and my heels to, to move because the cars were in the way I couldn't see what was going on on the other side, so I wanted to know what the hell was going on. <clears throat> so. I crawled. Um, from. Beside Gordon McNeil's car, around to the back of McNeil's car, and that's when I saw that the agents that were over behind Ben Grogan's car, Ben Grogan, Jerry Dove and John Hanlon were all down on the ground, and I saw Gordon McNeil down on on the ground behind his his car, so I'm thinking, holy shit, you know, I mean, the, all the agents are down, and I saw a pair of legs running from the rear of, of Ben Grogan's car to the front, so I said, everybody's down, so the the person running must be a bad guy. Okay, so I took my my shotgun in my right hand, one-handed, on my my side, on on the ground, underneath the car. I aimed it at the pair of running legs, you know, and I said, well, you know, it's got to be a bad guy. But I said, if I shoot, I'm shooting in the direction of Jerry Dove, Ben Grogan, and John Hanlon. I said, I can't shoot in that direction because if I miss, I, I may be the one responsible for killing a fellow agent. So, I mean, I went into a shoot, don't shoot dilemma. And I know my decision was not to shoot. Okay. But when you look at the crime scene photos, (laughs) uh, I had 12, I had um, five uh, shotgun rounds in the shotgun. I only remember firing four. Okay. Whereas in reality, there's five shell casings there. So I fired, the, the, the shot that I said I never fired, I fired it. And thank God it didn't, I didn't hit any of the agents, you know, I, I did hit the subject in the feet. Okay, with the with uh, 12, 12 gates, uh uh pellets, double up pellets, and, and or gravel went when the pellets hit the, uh, the sidewalk and the macadam, some of that stuff, you know, ricocheted up into his feet, you know, so. Um, so I don't remember making the shot, but the prime scene evidence and the autopsy showed that that I made it. Okay, so I scooted, kept scooting myself around to the back of the car and I sat up against McNeil's car with my back and the subjects were off to my, uh, over my left shoulder like this, in that direction at a 45 degree angle. So I actually had to turn around like this with the shotgun up like this to peek around the car to look to see what was going on. And I was shocked to me from the time that I had my, my arm out out like this and not shoot until the time I pulled my arm back up and scoot and sit down to me, it was 10 seconds. Okay. And in that 10 second timeframe, somehow the the, uh, two subjects had materialized inside Ben Grogan's car. Okay, and I'm thinking, holy cow, it was, I mean, I thought it was like magic, like uh, Star Trek, you know, beam me up, Scotty. Well, somebody beamed these guys into the interior of the car, because I'm thinking it was, it only took me 10 seconds to sit up. Okay, how the hell did they get, you know, from wherever they were back in the car? Okay, it, you know, it was, again, time distortion, you know, the, the, the uh, fight or flight Plus the shock of being shot, you know, also was kicking in. So,
0: so how long do uh, you think saw, it actually was, Ed?
1: I think it was more like 20 or 25, 30 seconds. Okay. Okay. That, I mean, that's how long. I mean, it, it, you know, because he had to run forward. I saw him running forward. And he had to retrieve his partner. They had their equipment bag. And then they had to run back to the FBI car, jump in the seats, and close the doors. Okay. Uh, you know, it's speculation, 20 seconds. Okay. But uh, to me, it was like, it was, it was like magic. it was like, wow. You know, again, that just shows you my, my, my perception, my, my ability to, to function in the real world. You know, the, uh, I was starting to experience blood loss, you know, I was losing consciousness and, and the shock factor was hitting in, uh, setting in. <clears throat> so, when I peeked at the subjects in the in the car, the FBI car, it became immediately evident what they were trying to do, and that was they were trying to to move the car. They were trying to either put the key in the ignition, or put the car in 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 reverse or drive or something, <laughs> because the driver was leaning forward at the, looking at the steering column, and the passenger was leaning towards the steering column, trying to help his partner. So it became obvious to me that they were they were trying to escape. Okay, and the only avenue of escape was to back the car up, and if they backed the car up, they would definitely run over uh, Jerry Dove, Ben Grogan, and possibly John Hanlon. So there was a very high probability that for them to back the car up, they would they would have to drive over three agents, and I didn't know what condition the agents were in, but if uh, if they had been run over by a car, they would definitely would would probably die. You know, so I said, Hey, you know what, I've got to keep these guys, prevent these guys from moving the car. Okay, so because if they move the car, the agents are really, you know, dead. So that's when I said, Okay, I've got to employ the shotgun, you know, I've got to you know, make sure I I somehow or another start putting shotgun rounds into the uh, into the compartment of the car. So uh, um, I, I, was analyzing. Obviously, I couldn't use my left arm, uh, and I'm thinking, how am I going to put, how am I going to steady a shotgun? And then I'm looking at, at my surroundings, and I saw the little lip on the bumper, and I said, hey, that's a perfect spot. You know, I put the, the fore end of the shotgun on the lip, <clears throat> and I had my, my right hand on the trigger guard, and I just used the, the corner, the little lip of the uh, bumper as my, my second arm or hand, and I manipulated the sights up and down, left and right on the shotgun. And that's how I employed the shotgun to fire as quickly as possible into the compartment of the car. And I did that four times. I would fire and the recoil would, would kick me back. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. And then I would, um, let, let the shotgun slide through my, my hand. It would uh, slide from the trigger guard. It would slide all the way up to the front foreend, And then I would pinch the, uh, the, butts, uh, the, Uh, butt of the weapon with my with my uh, thighs and then reached up with my good hand and racked the action and then I would put my hand back down on the trigger guard bring it back up around put it on the lip and and fire (coughs) I did that four times and um, I accomplished my mission I I thought I, I had actually just you know obliterated the guys inside the compartment the, the the inside of the car, because I mean I uh, I put four shotgun rounds into the compartment of the car. They it they didn't move the car. They stopped moving it completely. Okay, so I I figured, <laughs> excuse me, I figured those pellets, you know, probably penetrated the the side side uh, the passenger side window, and just like you know turned them into hamburger. Okay, at at autopsy. Not one single pellet hit hit the subjects. I was amazed. I was absolutely amazed that not one. We were shooting shooting 12 pellet Magnum. Each one of those uh, rounds had 12 pellets in it, the the double-out pellets. That's 12 times 5 is 60 pellets. Not one single pellet hit the subjects. I was amazed. I'm thinking, how the hell can that happen? You know, so it just goes to show you that, you know, you know, bullets and and projectiles don't always do what you think they're gonna do. You know, so at that point I'm I'm thinking, hey, this thing is over. They they're gone, they're they're toasted. Okay, that's the only time that I took my attention off the uh, off the subjects. Okay, and I had my back up against the car. And the only time I, I took my attention off the subject to, to, to the left is when I turned around and uh, looked at the right, and across the street, uh, looking at Ben Grove and uh, not Ben Gro- uh, Gilbert Arantia and Ron Reiser, <clears throat> who were across the street. I focused on them and I took my right hand and I I, I went like this, like, "Come on over," <laughs> I said, "It's okay, come on over," and they're yelling back, "Stay down, stay down." And it registered on me. I'm thinking, stay down. It's like, holy shit. They don't know the gunfight's over. And then I looked past them, and I saw a perimeter on the north side of the, of the street. And then I looked south, and I saw another perimeter on the south side of the street. Uh, the uh, Metro Dade had set up a, a perimeter. And behind the perimeter, they're, they're, on both sides, there must have been 20 ambulances and fire engines <clears throat> waiting, because they they, were, they couldn't come in. You know, there was a gunfight going on in the middle of the street. And they they had set up a perimeter, and they weren't coming in until they knew the gunfight was over, until the danger was over. And I'm thinking, holy shit, we are going to die. Okay, because at that point, I was starting to seriously, seriously lose consciousness. Uh, you know, I was reaching a point where it's like, okay, man, you know, this is, this is not a good thing. You know, I went from, hey, listen, amputate your arm today, to a point where it's like, hey, uh, I'm I'm gonna die today. <laughs> you know, there's a slight difference between amputate your arm and you, uh, I'm a dead man. You know, so. <clears throat> but I I kept having to shake my head more and more to stay awake because I I, I was actually if if you look at my my head, I was actually doing this. You know, I was like, uh, I have to, uh, you know, have to shake myself awake, you know, and um, it was like, holy cow, you know. But when when the agents across the street said, stay down, stay down, and I saw the perimeter, I said, we are going to die, you know, and something miraculous happened there. It's kind of miraculous, but maybe it's also scary. I I tell people, I said, hey, and I kind of jest And joke about it, but it's not. It wasn't a joke at the time. You know, I tell people. I said I had a conversation with God. You know, and it's the honest, to God's truth. And uh, I've I've learned since that uh, there's been the study made about uh, of uh, uh, ill people and 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 like long-term sick people cancer victims they go through five stages of of of, uh, of survival and and death you know uh the first one is uh uh anger denial uh acceptance uh, bargaining depression you know that's not the right order but that's what that's what they are <clears throat> and i went through four of those steps Okay, yeah. I, I didn't go through a depression because I mean I I went through those <laughs> four steps in like a, a second. I think, you know, first was like uh, denial. You know, it's like I'm not injured. You know, and then it was anger. You know, it's like oh god damn it, I'm injured. You know, the uh, uh, the third step for me was anger. You know, it's like oh, God. You know, it's like, um, and then I went to bargaining. Okay. That's when I was talking to God. I said, you know, God, you know, kind of like in the Godfather, hey, uh, can you get me out of this for old time's sake? You know, (laughs) no can do, Polly, no can do. So so God said, no can do, Ed, no can do. So at that point, honest to God, I I said, you know, I said, I'm going to die. I accepted the fact that I was going to die. Okay. And once I went through those first three steps, you know, uh, denial, anger, uh, bargaining. And, and then I, I, I got to a point of acceptance. Okay. And you know what, it just, it was a transformation. I accepted the, the fact that I was going to die and you know what all fear left. I mean, I, I, I became very tranquil. I mean, I was just like absolutely calm. You know, I mean, before I was angry and 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 fighting and and pissed and everything else, and then all of a sudden it's like, hey, you know what? What's what's there to worry about? You know, it's no big deal, you know. And um, of course, the whole time I'm doing this, you know, you know, I'm like trying to stay awake, you know. So even though I accepted death, I also had still had the spark of survival in me. You know, I'm thinking, you know, half of me is accepting death. The other half is saying, no, don't go to sleep. Fight. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. You know, it reminds me of that uh, the poem, you know, do, do not go gentle into that good night. Do not, mm-hmm. you know, rage, rage against the, the dying of the light, you know, and that's what was happening. You know, it's like it's fighting, you know. So I, the part of me that wanted to live, you know, said, hey, you know what? I've got to demonstrate to these people there's like literally like 200 people around me. 200 law enforcement officers, firefighters and stuff around me, and nobody's coming in to help. You know, I said, I have got to do something to demonstrate to these guys that it's safe to come in here. And the only way I I, I knew to to be able to demonstrate that to them was to stand up. Okay, because, you know, like I said, nobody knew the gunfight was over. Now, if anything happened when I'm going through this, you know, it's okay, coming over. God, can you get me out of this for old time's sakes? You know, one of those things. The whole time I, I took my attention off the subjects. Okay, but there was a witness across the street, uh, Marty Heckman, uh, Marty, Sidney um, Martin, I'm sorry, Sidney Martin was across the street. He saw Platt get out of the driver's seat with uh, a revolver in his left hand, walk up to within 10 or 12 feet of me and fire down at my position. With the, with the revolver, okay. And then he saw him stagger back to the driver's position and get back in the car. I never heard the shots. I never saw uh, Platt because I was looking at the agents across the street. Okay, uh, Sidney Martin saw and heard the shots. Gordon McNeil, who was on the ground, paralyzed, heard the shots and saw the uh, the street, the 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 tar, the macadam. Of the street, actually take the ricochet hits from from where the rounds hit, and he said it just sp- sp- spurred up you know asphalt and stuff. So he saw he saw the the results of the missed shots, and he heard the gunfire, but I never heard it. So as as far as I'm you know I knew it was no harm no foul you know so so right after that is when I decide to stand up, and to demonstrate to um, all the uh, officers around us that it was uh, uh excuse me that it was okay to, to, to come in so i said you know what i need to ensure double you know make make doubly sure that these guys are dead okay so uh, and that's when i decided to t- turn around towards the, the threat and i came out from behind the car i had the uh my revolver in my my right hand and i i, I Took two steps forward and set a position, and I brought the weapon up to eye level. You know, found the sights, and I fired uh, a shot at the driver. Missed. Took two steps forward, set my position, fired at the driver a second time. Hit him in the forehead. And uh, autopsy showed that the round hit him on the forehead and then uh, went under his skin and just didn't didn't penetrate the skull. <clears throat> took two steps forward. Uh, found the sights. Shot at the passenger, and hit him. I forget. Or hit him in the face somewhere. Took two more steps forward, set my position, shot the passenger a second time. Took two steps forward. Uh, excuse me, and set my position and fired at the passenger a third time. And took two steps forward, and I was right at the door. Uh, and I knew I had one round left over, so I, I shot the driver. You know, in in the uh, upper chest area and uh this round actually you know weird how positions you know uh have a lot to do with the trajectory of of a bullet uh that bullet because of the way he was laying i shot him in the chest but the the trajectory actually went up into his neck as opposed to straight through his chest. <clears throat> it was just kind of weird, you know, it's just the way your his position his body was positioned. I shot him in the chest but the round goes up and and hits him right in the neck uh vertebrae. Okay. And that was my sixth shot, okay? And that round uh crushed his uh, vertebrae in his neck and it just paralyzed him at that point in time so he he couldn't move any any anything at all, even his head was just stuck. You know, and was, that was the end of the gunfight pretty pretty much, except for the, the crazy pandemonium of, you know, 200 cops coming in to, to help, you know. So um, <clears throat> it was a pretty intense uh, gunfight. Estimated number of shots fired was 140 to 150 shots. And the shots were fired in an area, if you can look at your mind's eye and imagine a half court a, a, a basketball court, but only a half court. Okay, that's how small the area was. There were uh, all those cars, and there were ten men uh, shooting at each other in an area the size of a half court, uh, a basketball court. Okay, uh, the gunfight lasted approximately. We they estimate anywhere from four to four and a half minutes. You know, it kind of it, it kind of varies back and forth depending on, on, on how, how you time it and so on, you know, but they, they, they said it went from four, four and a half, maybe five minutes towards the very end. And, uh, um, it was pretty, pretty intense <clears throat> out of the 10 participants, eight, uh, eight agents and uh, two bad guys, nine of the 10 participants were either wounded or, or killed outright. Okay. So that's a 90% hit hit rate. And, uh, uh, unfortunately, Ben Grogan and Jerry Dove were killed, and uh, the the two subjects were also killed. You know, so uh, I was shot twice. Uh, McNeil was shot twice. Uh, John Hanlon was shot three times, uh, once in the uh, right hand, uh, and then once in each thigh. And uh, Ben was shot twice, and Jerry Dove was shot twice. He was actually three times. He was shot twice in the head, which which uh, is the shot that the shots that killed him. And then uh, Richard Menauzi and Gilbert Arantia got uh, peppered with shrapnel with the rounds coming through the cars. And when the rounds hit something in the car that caused them to shatter, they kept coming through like a shotgun blast and peppered them in various spots, you know, with uh, shrapnel. So uh, they were not, the, those two agents did not receive an actual rifle round going through their body. You know, they they received the shrapnel. So, um, but it's still, I mean, shrapnel is sh- shrapnel to shrapnel. It's like getting hit with a shotgun pellet, you know? So, but, uh, at the end, you know, it was about a total of five minutes. Uh, uh, Platt was shot 12 times uh, from shotgun, nine millimeter rounds and 38 caliber rounds. Okay. He, he literally was shot to pieces and Maddox was shot, uh, six times five times to the head and neck and one time to the, uh, to the right uh, wrist area. Um, um, I, I've been asked why, did they, did they have more uh, magazines? They, they had, uh, if, if you saw some of the crime scene photos that, that I uh, presented in my lectures, they had five additional 30 round magazines in their, in their little uh, equipment bag And the question's been asked, why didn't they use the additional magazines? Okay. And uh, I can only speculate uh, that they didn't use the magazines because they were shot to pieces. (laughs) That's the bottom line. Okay. Uh, Platt was shot through his right arm and his right Upper arm and chest. Um, he was shot through the, across the arm in this fashion. It, it broke his uh, radial bone and severed the uh, the tendons that that uh, function these two fingers, the thumb and the and the index finger. Uh, plus, he had severe arterial bleeding, and uh, Maddox uh, t- took a uh, hit to to the uh, brachial plexus which is up here in your shoulder, it severed the um, brachial uh, vein and artery, the the artery that services your right arm, and it severed the the nerve uh, bundles that service the arm. So in my opinion, they had five additional 30 round magazines, but they could not make their hands function, their arms function enough to be able to manipulate the, the magazines and, 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 insert them into, into the rifle. Okay. Because that's the only answer I have, you know, because why, why did he get out of the car with a revolver in his left hand? Okay. Because his right side was shot to pieces. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that's, what I, that's, My speculation. So I don't know if you have any questions. (laughs) No, I I would
0: would agree. I think that uh, that that revolver was already loaded. That was kind of his last ditch effort, and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's what happened. Now, the thing that affected me the most in your story, and I could really feel the emotion in it, was when you said you were going to send these guys to hell and join them later on. (laughs) Well, see, you know what,
1: again, you know, I was having that schizophrenic conversation. You know, uh, at first I had a conversation with God and God said, Hey, you know what I, I can't help you. You know, you're but on then, your own path. But then a few
0: <laughs> seconds later a
1: few seconds later, you know, I'm thinking, Okay, you know, I accepted death. You know, I was like, Okay. So that then I start going into a schizophrenic conversation, you know, I you know, tranquility and peace. You know all all uh, you know like a coke commercial you know like hey you know we are the world or whatever <laughs> whatever song that is in the coke commercial <laughs> from the 80s you know <laughs> but the other half of me was like angry it's like fight keep fighting keep fighting you know and i i was literally having a schizophrenic conversation with myself it's okay go take it easy Rest, you know. It's okay to take a nap. The other side of me is saying, no, no, keep fighting, keep fighting. You know, so uh, you know, it, it just kept going back and forth. But you know what? I said, hey, you know what? If I'm going to die, you know, which I had accepted the death, I am going to make sure that these two bastards die with me. You know, if I have to take them to hell myself, I I'm going to make sure they go to hell. Okay. And, you know, that's a nice Christian thought. You know, it's in, the, it's in one of the Bibles, <laughs> I think. I, I, I think maybe it's the devil's Bible. I don't know. <laughs> but the, uh, but it's, it's the honest to God's truth. There was raw emotion, absolutely raw emotion
0: there. Absolutely. <laughs> so all this is done. You uh, move on with your career. The big point of this is because you said there's been a lot of Monday morning quarterbacks. There's been a lot of people that says, what does this change for the FBI?
1: Oh, it was huge. Huge, huge, huge. Uh, For brevity's sake, I I will just hit the high points. Um, Jerry Dove shot uh, Platt. In, in what I describe in my in my book and, and in my lectures, as a he made a million dollar shot on Platt. Platt was a moving target. He, he Platt was moving from Jerry Dove's left to his right. Okay, and when he exposed his right side to Jerry's position, he exposed his uh, himself in a three foot wide window. Okay, that's that's how narrow the window was. Okay, and and Platt was moving from left to right. <clears throat> Jerry Dove made a million-dollar shot on uh, Platt center mass, okay? And that round went through his brachial artery in his right arm, penetrated his uh, right lung, and center mass straight towards the heart. <clears throat> Unfortunately, the brown did not reach the heart. It stopped about an inch short of Platt's heart, okay? Now, that injury or that shot would change uh, ballistics forever. Okay, that round or the lack of of, of satisfactory uh, results uh, caused the FBI to to, uh, take a serious hard look at at ballistics. (coughs) Excuse me. Up until that time, you know, uh, I think law enforcement agencies and maybe even the military to some some extent uh, would take the the word of uh, gun. Uh, not gun bullet makers, bullet manufacturers. They would take their word for for uh, for their bullet performance. You know, I, I mean, everybody had had testing just of to some sort, some level, but not real detailed uh, testing the the way, the way the FBI did it in 1988, <clears throat> because they couldn't figure out why the round didn't penetrate farther okay, into and, and and Platt's body, okay. And I'm told that, you know, it, that's just the way the round was. It was that's it was, it, The round was designed to do what it did. The, and I'm told that the round functioned up to its, you know, limit. Okay, unfortunately, it was not enough, okay, to stop the gunfight. Because after Jerry Dove shot Platt, okay, he continued to fight for an additional three, three and a half, four minutes. Okay, and that hit. I, I've talked to doctors that hit on, on Platt was called a non survivable hit. Okay, so the problem is, even if it was non survivable, it did not kill him quickly enough. Okay, uh, because after he's he takes that non survivable hit, he will continue fighting for an additional three minutes, three and a half minutes. Okay, and he will go on and he will injure, uh, he will uh shoot Jerry Dove twice and kill Jerry Dove. He will shoot John Hanlon three times. He will shoot Gordon McNeil a second time and he will shoot, uh, Ben Grogan once, and then he will shoot and kill Ben Grogan. So that is after he took the non survivable hit. Okay. So he goes on to kill two agents and, and wound two more. Okay. And, and, Nobody could understand how that is how that was possible. Okay, and it was possible because of several factors. the The, the ballistics uh, was was subpar, even though the round performed up up to standard. But it just wasn't what law enforcement needed. I mean, you know, we needed another inch or two of penetration, you know, to to stop the gunfight. Uh, and then the other side of it was the the psychology of survival. Okay, if you shoot nine out of 10 people the way Platt had been shot, nine out of 10 people will, will stop. They'll stop fighting, stop resisting. Okay, it's that one, tenth, that one out of 10 person who had the training, 101st Airborne, the, the, the mindset of, you know, hundred and first Airborne, keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting. Fight through the, you know, the the uh, the ambush. You know, go to go to fire, go to contact. Okay, keep you know moving forward. the The way to eliminate a threat is to uh, assault the threat, or 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 flank or ambush the ambush. Mm-hmm. That that type of mentality. Okay, so, but we we've learned that. Post shooting, okay. At, at the time, you know, there were, there were so many unanswered questions. You know, so the ballistics was big. The uh, the psychology of survival was 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 big, but that was that's that's a harder one to 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 kind of define and and to pin down. <clears throat> the other part of it is like, hey, if you have a six shot revolver versus the high capacity weapon a weapon with 15 rounds in a magazine or 30 rounds in a magazine, who has the advantage? Okay. The high capacity magazine, uh, shooter has the advantage because I would have to shoot. I would have to reload five times in a revolver to equal 30 rounds, the 30 rounds in, in Platts magazine. Okay. And every time I, uh, every time I break eye contact or, or break contact, uh, to reload, okay that gives that gives the other the other uh the adversary the advantage he can flank he can move he can you know fire and maneuver while you're you know down behind cover loading okay so it became obvious that that uh, law enforcement needed needed higher capacity uh, weapons so it changed ballistics it changed the weapons uh, uh, use we went from revolvers to high capacity pistols I changed ballistics. It caused the, um, uh, as I said earlier, it, it it was the birth of the forty caliber. Uh, this incident led to the to the development of the forty caliber, the ten millimeter rounds, in that law enforcement used. And for the the 40, 40 caliber uh, round was in use for in law enforcement for all, at least the la- the last twenty to twenty five years. Okay, now it's been, it's, it, you know, there's, there's a, we're going back to the future, as, as they say, now law enforcement is going back to the nine millimeter rounds, because uh, I'm told that there, there's been so much uh, advancement and development and in, in, in technology that, <clears throat> that the nine millimeter round is, is equal to or superior to a 40 caliber round now. So, um, you know, I, that's why I say it's back to the future, because we, mm-hmm the nine millimeter round was what caused all the research and now we're right back to the nine millimeter round again, you know, so well, in my and life, it used of, to be
0: bad for us too. So
1: yeah. Yeah. That's what I've heard. You know?
0: Yeah. That um, I, I think that, it, and, and I think it'll change again. Um,
1: yeah. You never know. I mean, pretty soon we'll be shooting lasers, <laughs> you know, laser pistols, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait really. <laughs> uh, uh,
0: you know, What was your biggest, I I guess this would be my final question for you. What would be your biggest takeaway from this? Whether that be to celebrate your life, whatever it may be, what's your biggest takeaway?
1: Well, you know, my biggest takeaway, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm extremely grateful you know, I, 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 conned God, you know, I told him, Hey, listen, I'm a good bet, guy. You know I mean? You, you can put your money on me. You know, I'll start going to church every day, every, not every day, every week, you know, and then of course, you know, i cut it down to once a month and then I cut it down to every six months, you know, and now I'm back to where I was before. So <laughs> I've kind of, I kind of reneged on my side of the deal. No, I'm just kidding on that though. So, um, but my biggest takeaway is, um, what, what I teach, or try to teach um, cops and recruits over the, over the last 30 years. Um, there is there is such a thing as as, as luck, okay? Even though you, you may not want to call it luck, okay? The Bible calls it uh, time and chance. It's uh, from Ecclesiastes 9.11, you know, the race is not always to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor, nor fortune to man, men of skill, you know, but time and chance happen to them all. OK, and that's a fancy way of saying luck. OK, and again, I told I told officers, you know, you can't plan uh, operations. You can't plan your life on luck. OK, um, but sometimes you have to make your own luck. You know, sometimes, you know, uh, Louis Pasteur said, hey, you know what? Chance favors the prepared mind. OK, and what does that mean? OK, chance favors the prepared mind how do we prepare? We prepare with training. Okay. I, I'm a big proponent of training, 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 training. If you're not working and you're not on vacation with your family, you need to be training somewhere, you know, <laughs> whether it's book training or, or firearms training or tactical training of car stops or something. Okay. Uh, I know the military does a lot of training. I mean, I mean, like I said, when they're not deployed doing something, they're training. Okay. And law enforcement officers need to train because like, like Pastor said, hey, chance favors the prepared mind. Um, so I, 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 I've told uh, officers over the course of, of many, many years, you know, it's like, hey, time and chance happens to, to us all, but chance favors the prepared mind. And that is that goes right back to training. <clears throat> and uh, with the training, the, the purpose of training is to help you solve problems okay I mean that's what training is all about um, you can't solve a problem if you've never solved the problem okay i mean it's that simple i mean it's almost like a self-explanatory <laughs> self-explanatory uh, answer you can't you, you can't learn how to solve a problem until you solve problems okay and training is that problem solving venue you know that that we can make mistakes in and stuff like that you know so um so You know, I always tell officers, you know, uh, the takeaway is try to get as much training as possible, either on your own or through the department. And then the the other aspect of it is um, the um, you never give up, never, ever give up. Okay, that is the will to survive. Like like I've told people in the past, you know, I can give you training. I can give you lectures. Your departments can give you guns and ammo and cars and radios but nobody on this planet can give you the will to survive that has to come from the individual himself and herself the will to survive has to come from you okay and that will again is going back to training and preparation okay if you learn how to if you learn how to prepare or you prepare you know, for, for for any eventuality, okay, you, your will to survive, you know, or your su- survivability is is quadrupled, quintupled, you know, and it just is magnified over someone who doesn't train at all. You know, so that's the takeaway, you know, never give up, train, and it never hurts to be a little bit lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Well, By the way, in case people don't know, I mean, you're 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 looking at, at the the lotto winner, the World Series win winner, and the World Cup winner, and and so on for 1986. Okay, you're looking at them right here. Yeah. Because the way mm-hmm. I was shot, okay, the way I was shot was just an absolute incredible. Uh, I, I can't do it justice on the video here, you know. But I I was shot straight on. Okay, with a, a an M16 round two, two, three caliber. And my arm was directly in front. I, I just happened to move my arm literally up like that at the last possible moment. And the round, the, the round hit me right here, as opposed to uh, hitting me in the chest. It hit my arm. Okay. I couldn't do that again in a million years, you know? That's, and uh, yes. like I said, it, 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 Never hurts to be a little bit lucky. <laughs>
0: well, Ed, uh, you, you have an amazing story. I'm I'm so honored that you took time to come on here and, and tell me about it. Uh, guys, if you want to pick up this book, and I highly suggest you do, it's FBI Miami Firefight, Five Minutes That Changed the Bureau. You can pick it up on Amazon. You can also go to com, pick it up there. Uh, you can also learn more about him there. Uh, he is also a person that goes around in lectures. Uh, he does training, all those things that he just mentioned. You guys need to check him out. It, it's uh, it's an honor to meet you. It's a, it's just a pleasure to hear your story and everything that you've done for law enforcement. So, guys, that's going to be it for tonight. If you want more of me, you can find me on Twitter at doublespeakdj. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD Podcast, and you can find me on YouTube at the DTD Podcast. Remember, guys, you stop by here every week because the best stories are true, and we give them to you. That's Ed. I'm DJ. That's been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later.